Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, May 29th, 2019, starting at 1.31 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 207th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for June of 2019. Uh, but first, in the beginning of the show, we're going to talk about our experiences at the Northwest Astrological Conference this past week since we just got back from that event yesterday. So I'm going to put timestamps um, in the description page for this episode, both in the YouTube description below the video as well as on the podcast website itself. So if you want to skip the pre-forecast chat, which we're going to do for about the first hour, and then jump straight to the uh, you know, where we start talk- talking about the planets, then just look for that timestamp in the description page. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting uh, access to great bonus content like early access to new episodes or the ability to attend the live recording of our monthly forecasts, like we have an audience of about 20 or 30 people doing today, then you can find out more information about the astrologypodcast.com slash subscribe and by signing up through our page on Patreon. All right. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris. Um, You guys are all feeling refreshed and relaxed after a week of very little sleep and lots of work. Well, I think my body's quite tired, but my soul and my heart are very happy and full. Yes, I think that's a great concise way to summarize where where all three of us are at at this point. Go ahead. You were going to say something? I was just gonna say, like, I haven't even been home twenty four hours, and I feel like I just saw you guys. Well, like it was a day literally and a half ago. yesterday, right? Yeah, well, Chris, I saw you less than twenty four hours ago. Yeah, twenty four hours ago, we were sitting around the hotel lobby, reminiscing and making future plans. Yeah, and trying to figure out what time the shuttle was going to arrive it's to the airport. Arrive. Right. So uh, we all just got back from the Northwest Astrology Conference. Of course, anybody who listens to the show knows we've been talking about a lot over the course of the past year, especially starting late last fall uh, when we all got different sort of invites to do different events there. Uh, NORWAC is an annual conference. It always happens, uh, what is it, Labor Day weekend? Memorial Day. Memorial Memorial Day weekend at the end of May. Uh, in the Seattle area, it tends to be a smaller, like regional conference that usually draws around 200, maybe 300 people. Uh, but for the first time in its 35-year history, it actually sold out this year, and there was over 400 astrologers in attendance. Uh, so it was like a big conference this year. And even though there was something very familiar about it, since all of us have been going there for you know, in some instances, I mean more than a decade. I, my first one was in 2006, and Kelly, I think your first one was what, like 2013 or 2012? 2013 for me, yeah. And I think Austin, you've been going for like 10 years or something too. 12. 12. 12, yeah. Kate and I actually made the decision to become a um, a duatic unit um, at the UAC or Norwac 12 years ago in 2007. Aww. Right. You guys actually celebrated your anniversary there this week. Yep. And every time we go to to Norwalk, it has that, which is kind of fun, right? Uh, but this one being your Jupiter return, and of course, mm-hmm. that was almost interestingly fitting since this was the first one where Kate has become very successful over the course of the past year or so since launching Sphere and Sundry. 
Yeah, well, hey, she was very successful before, but um, yeah, yeah, not saying. As, that, yo, I know, but <laughs> as a as a like web designer, as a you know, doing things behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was her. This is her first conference where everybody not what what felt like everybody knew exactly who she was and what she was doing as like a public facing person. So that was, I think, both fun and stressful for her, as it often is. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it was also fun. My partner Lisa, of course, came and great gave a brilliant lecture at uh, the conference on finding joy and meaning in the birth chart. Uh, and it was fun to see her, you know, developing more, you know, just about everybody associated with the podcast. We had like a ton of people coming up to us and talking to us and the influence of the podcast, like I always say, is not something that's very tangible until we go to these conferences and suddenly meet people in person who will sometimes like repeat something you said several years ago that you don't even fully remember saying, but uh, that's always an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, because we, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, that people are listening and you might hear numbers about the, about how many people are listening, but that's different than, because we're not doing this in a, in a space where we can see people's faces as we're yeah. talking most of the time. Like numbers um, are very abstract. Yeah. The, the impact or reaction or reception of the pod of any podcast is to some degree concealed from the people doing it. And so, you know, at an event like Narwhack, it's not people are like, Hey, I love your thing. Um, you know, I really appreciate your conversations with Chris and Kelly and, you know, I like this in particular, or you should have probably shaved before that episode, Austin, <laughs> or, you know, whatever they're going to have to say about this one. Nobody's ever actually said that to you, Austin. Have they? I mean, they no, thought it, no, but they that, haven't said yeah. it to his face. I, I say that. I like being like baby smooth. Kate thinks it's um, attractive or good to let the hairs grow on my face. I take Love her it. word for it because I don't have to look at me as much. <laughs> as yeah. So, so that being said, we did do at the very top of the <laughs> at the very top of the um, week. Like we started off with a bang by doing a big podcast event, and we recorded a live episode in front of an audience of about I didn't even know a hundred people, hundred plus people. I, I don't. I don't think we took count actually. I think it was. Oh, I would go eighty-five to hundred. 85 to 100, okay. Okay. Not I thought sure. it was like 150, but that, that, that was a little too early to when count. When we first got into the room, I, um, I thought there were, I thought it would seat less um, than we were talking about, but then I, I literally had to count the rows and columns and then do basic multiplication. And I, and I thought, oh, okay, actually, this does seat lots and lots of people. So I think it would, maybe it was more than I was eyeballing because. Eyeball wise, just the number of chairs looked like less than what math told me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was well attended and it was fun. We did a, a Q&A episode where we accepted questions and then just talked about them and basically recorded an episode like this one in front of a live audience. And uh, this was our second time doing that. We did that for the first time last year at the United Astrology Conference. Went very well, so we decided to do it again. We did not. We got a little bit of feedback that we didn't like circulate the microphone like we did last year because last year we had like, uh, like one one or two yes. awkward questions that came through. So that's one thing that we might do differently next time we do this is like more live audience interaction a little bit more in terms of taking the question or or 
finding in some instances there were people in the audience that asked the question, but maybe like circulating a mic or something like that. Yeah, I think we talked about, yeah, changing the structure a little bit for next time and having some time towards the end for live question and answer. Yeah, yeah. I think a little little bit of chaos does a body good. It's kind yeah. of fun. Uh, well, and we'll mention that because we had a little bit of that in our workshop, Austin, at the end of the, uh, in the other end of the spectrum. But so I'll release that episode as episode two hundred eight, as I think the first episode of June. So we're working on editing it right now, um, but that'll be out, so we don't have to dwell on that. But that was a fun event. Met lots of podcast listeners. Uh, Kelly, you gave two talks. You actually opened the conference with a whole keynote where you addressed like a room of like four hundred astrologers, right? Yeah, that was a little scary. Uh, I wasn't expecting quite such a large crowd, but Laura said there was, you know, there was 500 people there by the time you incorporated the speakers. I don't know if they were all in the room for the keynote, the opening keynote, but it was a very full space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never spoken because I, I kind of weaved in some of my personal story with some of the astrological symbolism, and uh, I was a little nervous as to how it would go, but um, it, it went well. It was really well received. So that I think uh, you crushed it. Yeah, I was really proud of you. I thought it was um, strong and wise and brave, and it was great. I thought it was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that means a lot coming from you guys. Your hug right after Austin was like just what I needed um, because, yeah, it's quite nerve-wracking. And it's it's a big honor to be asked to do that opening keynote because it's usually the largest presentation of the conference. Um, But, of course, then, you know, I don't want to let Laura down and I'll make it a bit of a dud, so – yeah, it's like, sure, no pressure, Laura. <laughs> right. Uh, but after no, you, that, yeah, I got to relax. So that was good. So that was the most like an- like anxiety in terms of performance for the conference for you? Yeah. And it wasn't like the anxiety went away because I still had to deliver two talks and a workshop. But I definitely had a, a vodka afterwards on Friday night just to- uh, A yeah, vodka. That- Singular. Pardon? Singular. Nothing. <laughs> Look, I did, you know, I, I don't think I was misbehaved, but I did. No, no. Like and <laughs> you earned that single vodka. <laughs> I believe we were calling it hard water. We did. We came up with the Pisces hard water. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I love about conferences. You know, you get to connect with so many people, but you always have those special few people that you just really have a lovely connection with. And sometimes it's because you have this chart thing in common or you have this other thing in common and it's just great to be I'm thinking of your wife right now Austin who has she and I do share a love of Pisces hard water things um, because of our moons and uh, yeah it was lovely to see her in person it was great you know one of the um, so there you know there's a feeling that a lot of people get at conferences of you know um, being among um you know, your family, your tribe, your your people, your whatever, fellow mutants, however people put it. In looking at social media very briefly yesterday and seeing a, a number of people's like, hey, Norwalk was amazing. I'm really tired. Um, I think it was Joe Gleason who said it had the feeling of a family reunion. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty nail on the head. Yeah, like a good family reunion. Yeah, like not, a good one where you Yeah, not not where you have to see that weird uncle you don't like, but where you get to see all your cousins that you just adore or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's I nice that, I suppose family reunion could kind of go dark. I didn't mean it that way, and no, I didn't I know. it that way. Well, it's nice because the for the new people, they have the experience of like 
finding family or finding out they have this relationship with other human beings that they of something they share in common and which is nice because it's otherwise such an isolating study since it's kind of a weird thing to study and a weird thing to spend a lot of time doing thinking about the planets and thinking about their relationship with your your life um so once you go to the conference sometimes like having that connection with other people whether through it's just going through to talks and like seeing other people lecture and talk about and present interesting research and ideas on that subject or meeting people in the hallway and developing a connection with other people that then become friends and then you have that ongoing relationship of when you see them again at the next conference um catching up and continuing to develop that relationship or for people like us who've been doing it for years it does feel like yeah like a, a family reunion or a class reunion where you're getting back together with people that you share a lot in common with and continuing that sort of shared journey in some sense yeah absolutely um this norwick actually I think provoked more feelings of not quite nostalgia because I didn't want to go back in time. Um, but there's a strong memory component to it because Norwalk was my first, for lack of a better term, normal conference. Like I attended Project Hindsight stuff earlier than I went to Norwalk, but that's that's a very different thing, different vibe. And so, you know, I could just, and it's it's been in the same hotel for but ever um it was in the same hotel 12 years ago when i went to my first one and i don't believe that was the first year in that hotel and so like i know the layout like i've i've sat at that table over there four times until 6 in the morning like i remember i'm like oh i'm on the third floor this time um oh the lecture rooms are over there i was shocked to see that they'd moved the bookstore that was the only yes! unfamiliar thing <laughs> That was crazy. Yeah. People were running around, not everyone, but where's the bookstore? And at first I was like, I'm not actually sure because it's usually here. But Oh, it's over there, right? They're like, no, I was now. just there. Yeah. My God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And that point was really emphasized in Lynn Bell's keynote lecture that she gave, I think maybe on Sunday, where she st started yeah, showing charts because she was kind of talking about mundane astrology and some long-term upcoming planetary alignments over the next decade. But she anchored it by setting some of the charts she was showing for one year in the future in one year increments to show like what the chart for the next Norwak would be, and then what the one in 2021 or 2022 or 2025 would be. And then just realizing that, yeah, there's a pretty good chance for some of us that we'll actually, you know exactly where you will be five years from now if you're like attending Norwak again at the same conference, likely at the same hotel. And then um, as an interesting way of anchoring, looking at some of those outer planet alignments at that point. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really smart. Because I think Lynn got a standing ovation for that keynote as well. Like yeah, that was good. Well, it was the Sunday keynote, which is, it used to be like Rob Hand used to give that keynote every time. It was just like for years, he would close the conference with some semi, some some inspiring sort of semi-philosophical or quasi-almost-religious type presentation about astrology that would give you some idea of some sort of like awe-inspiring insight into the subject in some larger cosmological sense. And um, that was kind of the role that Lynn was playing in closing down the conference and giving a talk like that. And I think she did a great job of 
of doing that and conveying the same same sense in, in some ways. I wasn't there. Um, yeah, I know. I'm like, we have to take your word so for it. I'm Chris. sure it was amazing. Lynn's amazing. And that, that, that talk was for many years referred to as the Sunday Sermon because yeah. of its larger implications. Right. Which is beautiful. Well, well in a, yeah, I mean, I, I almost don't want to go there, but it almost gave me some greater insight into the sort of quasi alternative religious role that astrology does play in some people's lives where because it's something that shows or gives people a greater sense of meaning and purpose um, in their lives, and it can just by virtue of the fact that it works works at all and shows some larger connection between the individual and the cosmos, that it was interesting um, seeing it play that role and, and almost being presented from that perspective. That's something I used to have an aversion to, an aversion to any way in thinking of astrology like a religion because I think of it more like a technical art, and that is what it is for the most part. But there's certainly components of it that play the role in terms of being inspiring or giving something people something to believe in, for lack of a better way to articulate that. That I think is important. That I'm starting to understand a little bit better now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, that I think that's something all of us who spend a lot of time with astrology have worked on. Uh, the problem being locating astrology into the categories of the culture that we live in, where there's like art, science, religion, mm-hmm. and astrology doesn't fit super snugly into any of those three. Um, there right. are meaningful overlaps with all of them, but it doesn't work to stick it in one or the other. Like, as far as um, what it overlaps with with religion, is one, it has. Um, it has cosmological and metaphysical implications. If you can do this technique and it consistently works, then that means something about the way that reality is structured, right? And so that that has implications. And the model of reality by which you navigate is something that philosophy and religion, you know, provide, right? So there's mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a uh, how should we say? Un, uh, uh, that's an that's an overlap or uh, astrology fulfilling a function associated with the religious that cannot be responsibly ignored. Does it tell uh-huh. you what? Does it necessarily astrology? What I would say astrology doesn't necessarily give you, or only speaks to partially, is a an ethics for what? How should you act in the world? Right there, there are some ethical implications in terms of like, well, if things work like this, there are more and less uh, effective ways to act in a world shaped like this. But that doesn't astrology, although compatible with a variety of moral paradigms, um, does not come packaged with a moral paradigm. Yeah. So how do you how do you bridge those or separate those, Kelly? Well, yeah, it's really interesting because I grew up in a Catholic family, like a traditional religious home, and my aunt, one of my aunts, is a nun actually in the Catholic faith, and we had this conversation uh, very early in, or like my early twenties when I was really getting quite serious about astrology, and uh, we, she and I, basically sort of discussed how it's human nature to want to. Um, believe in something larger than yourself. And, you know, obviously for her and her generation, mainstream religion was a bigger thing. 
And for us and for our generation and the generations coming up, astrology is filling that role. It's providing, it's a, it's a, a structuring tool that can help order or make sense of life, but it offers some things which religion offer, which is this connection to some sort of oneness or divineness. Um, it's also a, a tool, astrology is also a tool for provi- providing context and perspective on life's mm-hmm. events. So I do think there there are some functional similarities where you could get what you're looking for from traditional religions, Christian-based or otherwise, but you can also get some of that from astrology as well, which is not to say that astrology is a religion, but it is offering some of the things that people look for from traditional religions, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I, I think that one, um, and in astrology, that entanglement between celestial alignments and things down here um, has a very long history of being useful for religion. Um, just for example, probably the oldest use of, you know, of astrology is electional and it's, mm-hmm. when do we celebrate this God's hol- holiday? When do we do this ceremony? When do we, you know, when do we hook in? And even, you know, <clears throat> um, even as something as widespread as, as Easter uh, is timed astrologically, right? Well, yeah, and I did. I always sort of felt like I'd been duped a little bit because I went to Catholic school from year three when we moved to Sydney until I graduated high school in year 12. And nobody could ever explain to me why the date of Easter moved every year. (laughs) And then about four years after I started started studying astrology, I learned why the the date of, you know, Christian Easter was different every year. So there has been that entwinement over the years around when to celebrate, when to have you know, magical celebrations. And the Christian-based faith isn't the only one that does that. The Jewish faith and the Islamic faiths have celebrations based on sun-moon relationships, usually in proximity to things like the equinoxes and the solstices. So, Yeah, I that, believe the, um, yeah. the oldest Vedas actually show um, evidence of using um, astrological timing, I believe particularly lunar mansion timing, um, in order to figure out when to when to do which rituals, when it's, you know, when the skies will be aligned uh, in such a way that it'll be easiest to connect to what you're trying to connect to by doing a particular uh, ceremony. And as uh, yeah, Jen points out- Yeah, and it's out, quite, like, that ahead. to me is just fascinating. Well, as, and that is not very different than what goes under the name of astrological magic. Like, when do you do the ceremony, right? That's, <laughs> like, that's, it's yes. the same question. But anyway, I think in that context, astrology, one of the ways you can see it is it's a temple art, right? It's something that um, you might do in a uh, in a religious context and is extremely useful from a religious perspective. Um, but you know, something like learning how to uh, carve uh, carve a statue properly and uh, and bring the the intelligence and potency of a god into it, which is something that was all the rage in Egypt and then later Hellenistic Egypt and in a variety of other cultures. That's not a religion, but it's a it's a temple craft. And I think that it, as- it is, and it's it shows the importance of these celestial cycles in that even some of the major artworks of the Renaissance and things like that have not just the motifs of astrology in them, but were started at auspicious times. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, and, yeah, then timing is just a basic human concern, right? From the mundane down to the sacred. 
Yes, exactly. Down to um, the, that's funny. I said that in reverse. I like but, that. But that's kind of fun to do that in reverse. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, yeah, the religion intersection point is really interesting. And I think that's part of why, you know, astrology is just growing so much today is that it seems to satisfy that craving for the modern mindset more than what else is out there at the moment. Yeah, I, so because we have a little extra time because Chris is having yes. technical problems, I'm going to open up one of my pet peeves. Love it. Um, which is I don't like um, – it's not, it's not entirely incorrect, but I'm a little tired of the framing of, well, humans need meaning and it's just a – it's a need like hunger and so you've got to feed that um, because I think that – delegitimizes what's going on. I would say that human beings intuitively know that there is a whole lot more going on and that we have a real entanglement or connection to the rest of the world. And so we need an intellectual, uh, we need a framework for our mind and a practical framework for our actions that takes into account that larger coherence. Does so that make sense as a, as a difference in, in, in approach to that question? I feel like it, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, you're hungry. Of course you want to eat. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And so how, how do you see it outside of that, like instead of that perspective, basically? Well, um, as I was trying to articulate the, um, that our, our sense and experience of the world um, involves that connection to and that having a map that reflects that and helps us navigate that is, of course, we want that, right? That is not just, um, it, I suppose what I'm protesting to is that is the parallel to the, the need or hunger for meaning as being the primary reason you humans have religions. Um, like paralleling that only to a biological need, it's also an intellectual it's mm -hmm. it's it's a need in the same sense actually as food in that it's useful um it's required for continued healthy being at a variety of levels and we just know that like you know there are a lot of known unknowns out there um that astrology works at this point is a known um but the you know the mechanism and its implications are unknowns and that we can tell that there's something there and so we want a map to reflect that hey chris we were just going off on the, uh, or having an extended journey through the question of astrology's relationship to religion. Welcome back. Okay, sorry about that. My computer cut out uh, just now, but I'm back. And hopefully, I'm sure you guys said something really deep and profound, and I'll get to hear it later when I watch this back over again. But maybe we should move on. Uh, Kelly, you were curious about other aspects of Norwalk? Yeah, I just wondered if either of you had any particular highlights and how you felt this year was perhaps different from previous years. I mean, we uh, were all staying up equally late, so that's been fairly consistent. <laughs> right. Aside from like getting older and realizing I'm not in my 20s anymore, so that staying up and getting like three hours of sleep each night results in being a zombie by the end of the conference. Uh, one of the things I noticed that I didn't realize until later in the conference was Laura, the organizer, had ha had actually there was a huge sort of like generational turnover in this conference at this Norwalk where there it wasn't just the attendees, but even the speaker selection. There were less um, 
sort of uh, fixtures of Norwak, less like leading astrologers from the Pluto and Leo generation than at any other Norwak I've ever attended. And she actually brought in a lot more young. She's always very good about at least having a few young, like, like younger astrologers giving mm-hmm. their first lectures or who are still relatively early in their career. But at this Norwak, more than any other time, there was a lot more astrologers that were like younger to middle aged. And it was interesting that it still ended up being a successful conference. And not only that, but it ended up being their most successful conference so far in terms of attendees. So there wasn't like, and what I mean by like Pluto and Leo is like there wasn't like Rob Hand wasn't there, um, Stephen Forrest wasn't there, Demetra George wasn't there. I mean, they're all off like doing things. Like Demetra was leading a tour in Greece that looked really amazing from what I saw on social media. And Rob Hand has apparently announced recently that he's just finished writing the new edition of Planets in Transit. And Stephen, of course, is like jet setting all over the world teaching intensives. But it was interesting that there were was a sort of generational shift in even the speakers at Norwalk this year, um, which is a bit of a gamble on the organizers' part. But instead of being something that where it drew less, it actually somehow still drew the same, if not more. Yeah, the generational turning point, like um, that that process, which we've been watching for a while, having reached a very clear critical mass was very obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I guess the primary location where I saw or felt that um, was seeing all of the the younger astrologers, um, you know, the people who were like, this was their first conference. And I believe right before Kelly gave her opening remarks, um, Laura asked everyone to raise hands if this is your first Norwak, and it was like 230 people or something. It was like half of the audience. Yeah, which um, was just like really breathtaking to see. But I, you know, I remember, you know, us being the kids' table um, <laughs> for a lot of years. You know, there were Norwaks where, you know, the under the under the, the under 40s were like Chris, you, Kate, me, and then maybe two or three other people. And that was that was normal a lot of years and seeing um, and that was, you know, that was awesome for getting to know each other. And I I was um, and this is what I was referring to when I was saying nostalgic. It's not quite nostalgic, but seeing um, a lot of the seeing a lot of the younger people who are and maybe and some of them maybe aren't even that young um, bio wise. But, um, you know, like this was their first conference. The community is new to them. And like seeing them get to know each other and like bonding at 4 a.m. and all that, I was like, oh, this is this is beautiful. Like I remember, I remember that. And it's mm-hmm. uh it's a nice thing. And it also made me feel, as I was saying, like as I said to you at the conference, very confident about the future of astrology. Like, you know, um just knowing that, okay, like these are the people that are gonna be speaking in five or ten years. Maybe some yeah. earlier, maybe some never, but whatever, like like that, you know, there's a very strong and coherent group of, you know, people who are going to carry this forward. Um, and much, honestly, you know, much stronger um, <laughs> than uh, than our contingent was. Um, it was confidence inspiring and a little nostalgic for me. Like, oh, I wish I remember when that was me, which also made me realize how much that wasn't me now, um, which with, that maybe made me a little sad. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing. It's been hilarious and bizarre for me to see this new generation of astrologers coming in one Pluto generation over with like Pluto and Sagittarius. And nothing makes you feel older than realizing that you're like not the youngest Pluto generation anymore uh, in the field. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a shock, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But it's like a pleasant shock. I was trying to explain to somebody recently where it's like, the um, symbol of your own mortality isn't like a grim reaper, but it's like a 22-year-old like Cameron White, for example, who's like an exuberant sad rising with sun in Leo. So it's like the symbol of your own mortality is a um, lovable band of like young, energetic 20-something you know, astrologers that are doing great work. Uh, so it's almost endearing and something you can embrace rather than something that you're scared scared of necessarily. Yeah the the only um, the only difficult implication is like okay well how am I supposed to act now if I'm if I'm in a different role and people have different expectations like what is you know I and mean, this is this is the eternal question is you know what what is being an adult look like. Right. I'm, I'm no, I'm not using the model my parents used because that was maybe a good enough model for the times they were living in. But, you know, adult, how to do that phase is something that every generation has to either settle for doing it exactly the same way as the people that came before or um, going through the difficulty of reimagining that. And I don't think I have like a great answer for that yet. About how to be an adult. Yeah, my uh, my my temporary answer was drink less, <laughs> which you did actually. Yeah. <laughs> you you really did. Uh, you still stayed up beautifully late, uh, oh, yeah. but you were definitely drinking less for sure. I think I went the other way and decided to drink well, more. You, yeah, you earned it though. I was um uh, originally I was only going to give or uh, participate in our three way podcast, but. Uh, on Sunday, um, Chris was like, hey, why don't you co-teach my seven-hour workshop with me tomorrow? So, yeah. um, you know, the, I got... so I ended up being a little bit more active than, uh, than I had initially planned. Yeah, Which so was I had great. A, I had and a how lucky of... for everyone. Yeah, Sorry, it was Chris. great. It yeah. was just, a, you know, it was just a, a meaningful shift in the planned order of events. Yeah, I had a lot of stuff scheduled for the week, and somewhere halfway through the weekend, I realized that I'd been doing the podcast for so long that I was used to doing dialogues with people, and I can do like a seventy-five-minute lecture, um, but even you know, pretty easily, where you're just like speaking at an audience and you take a few questions, it's relatively concise and it goes by fast. But for like the longer, more detailed things lately. I'm used to like having somebody to bounce ideas off of and talk with, and that's turned into instead of being something that's annoying, it's something that I enjoy um, being able to have a dialogue format because the back and forth creates something unique and something uh, it's like a pressure chamber that creates something um, more interesting and dynamic than just hearing somebody lecture like at you for four hours. So um, I had always wanted to do a workshop with like the three of us on that topic yeah. of synthesizing modern and ancient astrology because I think that's really part of the program of what we're going to be doing for the next decade at least, if not the rest of our careers, is 
completing that synthesis now that there's been the revival of all these ancient forms of astrology and there's so much diversity in the community now, but also a question of what to do with all of that seeming like chaos and how to, from that chaos, create something that's a little bit more easy to manage in some sort of synthesis. So uh, yeah, Kelly, you were already doing a workshop, so I couldn't unfortunately drag you into that. But since Austin was going to be there an extra day and was just kicking around, uh, I thought I would like extend the offer at least to see if he'd be interested. And since so many people already listen to us on the podcast all the time, I didn't think that anybody would be too upset by the surprise like introduction of Austin. No, I think you guys even got a name like. Uh- I, oh, someone like, mashed your names together like on Twitter. Chris Pock or something. Yeah, it was like Kristen Brenpock, Brenock or something. Brenock. <laughs> yeah, which is great. And I, I was, I was like, oh my god, I now want to go to this lecture even more because you guys are going to be friend- presenting together. But uh, when that was our first time presenting together, like we've done a bunch of podcasts, but that's it's a different format, different format, different style. So that was fun. It was interesting to, and it was also like. Um, not something I had proposed and had planned out. And so it was, you know, there's also kind of figuring out how to contribute meaningfully without wildly detouring it into an Austin thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things was funny is like, you were like, yeah, sure, we could do that. And you thought it was going to be a little bit more condensed or like isolated and easier to manage or, or limited in its reach than it was. But then when we actually did it, you were surprised at like how much I was trying to cover and like how far reaching we were trying to go. Yeah, it ended up being huge in scope. I mean, we ended up laying out um, sort of uh, all possible points of friction between um, different uh, different approaches to signs, planets, houses, and aspects um, for two thousand years. Um, which is rather large in scope, right? Like, you know, whole sign aspects, cross sign aspects, um, you know, aspects by number. What is the original doctrine? What is the difference between these two? What does an aspect mean? What is it if we're coming at an aspect looking for, uh, you know, looking for psychological structure versus we're looking for event structure? What, you know, it was like that level of depth on everything, which is, you know, why it took so, which is, I suppose, appropriate for filling um, an entire morning and afternoon. But yeah, it was um, it was large in scope, and I like that we settled on not answering all of the questions and or not pretending to have answers for all the questions. Um, and Chris, at the end, laid down sort of laid down the gauntlet of like, okay, these are the questions, and this is not the work of one brilliant person. Like, this is the work of a generation. Mm. Get started, everybody. Yeah, I like that. It was a great ending. Yeah, well, no, any nobody that follows my work has followed my work for long enough knows that I'm, if anything, but um, overly ambitious, and that was definitely like an overly ambitious outline. But it was a good starting point for a lot of future discussions that I want to have, especially between the three of us, since on the one hand, our approaches have come out so similar just naturally as we've tried to navigate using ancient and traditional astrology in our personal practices on a daily basis. But then on the same time, there's some notable differences. And that's some of what we explored also in the workshop a little bit, I think. Right, Austin? Yeah. Some of the differences just naturally arose. Right. 
Um, like one of them that we noticed as a recurring theme is that it seemed like you had a tendency when you see differences to try and reconcile or synthesize them, even when there's two different approaches to things. And sometimes I would just identify the different approaches and occasionally go with one or pick one or the other. Yeah. And I think that's um, a per- just a, a difference in approach and personality that many podcast listeners would not be surprised by because mm-hmm. um, we were we were um, debriefing afterwards and, and talking about that and I tend to take the the blind man and the elephant approach to differences assuming that I think one of you know assuming that none of the blind men clearly disqualifies themselves with the failure of their perceptions but I'm like okay this is a a huge I, I, I take what is real to be huge and multifaceted and difficult to know. And so I try to, you know, if somebody's doing something that seems to work, um, you know, and they're describing, you know, the, the tail of the elephant as a snake, um, then I, I try to see what all of the infor- uh, what all of the reports together suggest about the shape of the invisible elephant. Um, obviously sometimes I just think some people are wrong, um, <laughs> in disregard, yeah. but that, that is yeah. generally my approach. I mean, and, and that's the, the issue I sometimes have is like, sometimes there's like a thing where I don't feel the necessity to reconcile it because I'm not even sure that they're talking about an elephant. Like they maybe offer, you know, feeling up some other animal that has nothing to do with the subject at hand. And those are the instances where, uh, like, I want to be a little irrelevant beast touching, (laughs) right? Yeah, Uh, that could be the title of the next workshop between the three of us. Uh, But next time, I want to bring you in, Kelly, because that would definitely have completed. I think uh, uh, there's a huge missing piece there in terms of having your voice for some of those discussions. I know I missed, uh, I definitely missed not being a part of it, but I know you guys did a wonderful job. I know you had amazing feedback. Um, and I do, as I feel like it's a good step in the right direction because I know we've talked about doing some things, the three of us, um, independently. So, yeah. And we're going to have some opportunities too soon, uh, yes. next year at future conferences, definitely at the ESAR conference in September of 2020. Which I am, I am speaking about, yes! or speaking yes! at. I know I complained about not getting an early invitation on a past episode of the podcast, but I found out at Norwalk that I will be speaking. They actually offered me, um, they actually offered me two slots, so I'll be speaking about two things. One of them um, will be about planetary magic, which is the Excellent. only magic lecture that I think was even proposed. So maybe the other one too. Yeah, you awesome. could totally Congratulations. do two. On that. Thank you. So now you can fully endorse that conference. Yes. Uh, I yeah. like ESAR. I was just prepared to be salty about it. Right. I love it. And for everyone who's listening, I know we've had a couple of comments coming through in the chat box about the recording for the uh, workshop you guys did at Norwalk, but also the other Norwalk events. I know, Chris, you want to make a note about quality, but the recordings yeah. are available via the Norwalk website for everything. But what you're worried about the sound quality for your event, your workshop? Yeah, I'm just not sure how well it came out, so I don't know how much I want to promote that. And that's also something which was a bit of a test run, and I'm looking forward to us doing three together. And I think that's going to complete what we attempted and and what this was a starting point for over the weekend. Should we say a little bit more about that now since it's come up? 
Sure, we might as well. So we are talking about, and we're in the planning stages for possibly getting together to, at the very least, do an in-person recording of the yearly forecast, the next yearly forecast episode this December of 2019. We need to, as we always do, get together to record the forecast for the next year. But we were thinking about, um, since I now finally have the recording studio and we can get such more high quality, better high quality video and audio recordings there when people are in person, you guys coming out here for a few days to hang out and record that. But we figured that we're trying to figure out a way to make that possible like and like viable financially. And especially since you're moving to Europe soon, Kelly, and you're gonna have to like fly over back over yeah. to Denver from Belgium. And that in order to do that, we might want to like host some sort of actual workshop, the three of us. Um, out here in Denver in December. So we're still in the very early planning stages of that, but we did want to at least put um, a notice out and put some feelers out to see if anybody might be interested in attending that to give us some idea of what we might be working with and um, if we should do it. So let us know what you think, primarily in the... Go ahead. I was just going to say, and we're, you know, again, this is a feeling out, thinking about when and what shape. I would be. <clears throat> I think it would be helpful um, if people could give us some feedback on. Would you be interested in like a um, two or three day all weekend thing, or like a, a one day thing? You know, if you had your druthers. Yeah, if, right. you, if you could pick, what would you prefer? That's a great question, actually. Well, it's we've been talking about it, right? Yeah, that's true. I forgot that part. <laughs> I think I think there's gaps in my memory because my sleep levels have not been uh, recalibrated yet. Yeah, definitely. So we'll see what comes of that and hopefully more information and a little bit firmer idea by the time we do maybe either next month's forecast or the forecast after that. Um, let's get back to just wrapping up the Norwak discussion. Um, there was like a lot of people to talk to over the course of the week. And one of my issues, there's always that tension between like wanting to like catch up with a bunch of people versus make new connections and and like wanting to have in-depth conversations with individuals versus like wanting to like go through the line of all of the like hundreds of people you're trying to catch up with over the course of a few day period and by the end of that there's always that situation where you don't fully get to like connect with or have those interactions with with everybody that you wanted to although I was thinking in the airport that um, there's still hope at the end of that that even if you don't get to make some of those connections that there still might be, an opportunity to, and you still might get another chance to at some point in the future at other conferences. So for example, Kelly, it's like you and I didn't even, you came to UAC in 2008 in my hometown in Denver, and I was there and doing a bunch of stuff, yeah. but we just didn't, we just completely missed each other and didn't meet then. But then we did in 2012 when you came up to me and introduced yourself. And then since then, we've been close friends, like ever since that point. But it's funny that that would have happened like four years sooner if we had made that connection. And yeah. on the one hand, kind of too bad that that didn't happen. But on the other hand, there was almost like an, an inevitability that we would, and we eventually did at the later conference. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I remember sort of seeing you fly by at some point. I think you had to step in at the last minute and do a talk for someone in 2008, maybe? Yeah, Robert Schmidt dropped out at the last minute, and I went from being rejected as a primary speaker and rejected as a, I couldn't even get like a lunch lecture. They were like, I'm sorry, you're not, yeah, not, I couldn't you even get a lunch who, lecture. You, you rejected as a human too. being. <laughs> right. 
to suddenly like my one of my primary teachers dropped out and I was the natural replacement for him. So I ended up giving two talks suddenly on Hellenistic astrology and becoming like a main speaker at the conference within a two to three days before it started. Just amazing. Yeah, and we did miss each other then, although we did connect the following UAC. And it is, it's it's so tricky. And I think, you know, one of the points that um, you had um, sort of put down, you know, it's that idea between sitting down and having an hour-long conversation with a couple of people where you can get into something more substantial versus wanting to say quick hellos, you know, so you can at least have that brief connection. And it's a real tug of heart because I'd love to have an hour long, well, two or three hour long conversation with everyone, but realistically there would be zero sleep and probably no professionalism at all if that was happening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there needs to be some kind of like speed dating model for astrology conferences where you can cycle through like conversations and like say hi to everybody at least for like a few minutes while still like moving through on to like every everybody else. I but arranged anyway. a, a variety of dates. Um, somebody Did would you? come up to me like when I was going between A and B and say, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm blah blah blah." Um, and I, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this and that. I'd be like, "I can't do that right now, but I'm going to be over there in two hours, and I'll be there for four hours. Come up, we'll sit down, we'll have that chat." Um, because I I know from past conference experience, if you don't like make a semi-formal arrangement then you're just rolling the dice and yeah. uh, as far as the oh i'm oh hi i'm blah 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 um i think it was kate that suggested that everybody write their twitter handle on yes. the uh, on their name tag because there were so many people like oh yeah. you're at you know fun na 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 um <laughs> i i know you or i no. you know i i know a lot more about you than i thought i did nice yeah. to meet you I had that experience like going home in the airport realizing that I had met a lot of people that I knew online or that I at least saw a lot of people I knew online at the hotel and never made the connection with their online persona and that we had had many other interactions in the past just because I don't really know what people look like and I'm not very good with people's names so that was kind of rough and I do wish there was like uh I don't know like like you said like people's like Twitter handle would be useful on like their name tag yeah, I think if your Twitter handle or your social media name is substantially different from your real name or if you have not a picture of your face on your social media, because I had the same thing. I was like, right. oh, I actually talked to that bird. At, you know, you didn't- Psychic <laughs> moment. I was just thinking if you have a picture of a bird. Yes. Because <laughs> then it's like, oh, I just – and you don't re- – like you lose the context because maybe you've bantered with them on Twitter – and you think you're talking to someone you've just met for the first time, but not realizing that you've actually had this back and forward already. Yeah. Um, I The other thing I did is I, because I'm more of a morning person, I don't know this would work for you guys. I usually make secret breakfast dates with people. So I had wanted to make sure I caught up, for instance, with Sam Reynolds. And I know he's often very busy being an ESAR board member. And so we just made a plan to have breakfast, you know, meet up at 7.30 in the morning and just duck off site and get a little bit of a, a catch up. So if yeah, you're I, a morning- I, I, yeah. Sam and I literally emailed about doing that before the conference because we're like, yeah. we've always like had a really great five minutes at every conference and be like, oh, and we're going to talk, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then um, we failed at that again. 
but um, I did get to share the table with him at dinner. And I went to his lecture partially or in large part because I was interested, but also I was like, that'll be, I'll get some Sam time by just hearing him do his thing. And it was awesome. Yeah. So it is, I mean, whatever your strategy is, it is something to think about, like, how are you going to fit in not just the formal parts of the conference going to the lectures, but how are you going to squeeze in all the in-person connections? Yeah, there's definitely some some time time management skills pay off a lot at conferences. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry for anybody that we didn't get to connect with mm. or say hi to or that I like almost did and got interrupted or it didn't work out. And thanks to everybody that like came up and introduced themselves because I otherwise didn't like introduce myself to as many people since I would like walk by somebody and there was like a few times where I had a few people where I would make eye contact and I thought somebody was avoiding me and then later I realized that they were just like socially awkward or nervous and struck up a conversation and then it went, went rather well um, but I know that's not not easy for everybody to do. Yeah, I had the same uh, experience where somebody would give me weird eyeballs and be like, does that person hate me? Do they know me and hate me, but I don't know them? Right. Uh, and then later they'd introduce themselves and be like, hey, I'm a big fan of the podcast. You know, I really like your work. I was like, oh, thank God. Thank, thank, thank God they don't hate me. That's so funny. Oh, that's really um, sweet. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Final other points I have written down. One of them, I know there's a lot of younger astrologers and newer astrologers that got excited about wanting to speak at conferences and applying to speak. And I think that's a good idea. One piece of advice I would give all of them is sometimes for new speakers, when you're applying to conferences, they like it if you have, or sometimes it's even a requirement to have a recording from another astrology lecture that you've given. And a good way to do this is um, like uh, speak at a local astrology group even if it's just like a meetup or even if it's like a group of like your friends or something like giving a live presentation and having that recorded so that you can submit that to show your lecture style and the quality of the lecture and just the fact that you can give a lecture in front of an audience is definitely better and not just a more effective way of making sure that you get selected for a conference but also it's good to have that practice before you get up in front of a room of like 50 people to give a presentation because that can be very nerve-wracking and sometimes doesn't go well unless you have a little bit of experience doing it first. Yeah, I would also add that um, by all means, chase your dreams and ambitions, but it's also really fun to not have responsibilities at a conference. Yeah, uh, It's really nice to not be like stressing about your talk in three days for the entire conference. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I remember when I first started speaking at conferences, I was like, yay, goal achieved. And then I was like, oh, this is a lot harder than when I just would come to the conference and hang out. Yeah, it's like one of those curses, like be careful what you wish for. Yeah. 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 And I was supposed to have, you know, the more mellow version of, <laughs> of that this year. But um, uh, Chris and Fate um, uh, had you. different ideas. And no, and I'm I'm not complaining. I love doing that with you, Chris. Well, and great. also too, you but. did. It wasn't until sort of Sunday lunch or Sunday afternoon that it that it sort of came out that you were going to do this. So you it did have a few days. It was proposed during dinner on Saturday night, and okay. then it was okayed by Laura on Sunday, on Sunday. afternoon. Okay, so yeah, you had a couple I, of days. I had like a year of preparation for this, and Austin had about <laughs> 20, twenty-four hours. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Skills. Um, okay, so that's one thing. 
uh, speak at a local astrology group. The other thing is like lots of ideas come out of a conference and people leave with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and sometimes like ideas about things that they want to do. And I'd really recommend that people start writing those ideas down and start working on them right away while the energy is still fresh um, because that will carry you into the new project. And a lot of people start stuff immediately after conferences because just being in that sort of space and interacting with other people or being exposed to ideas and lectures, that's one of the great things about conferences. It just has a way of generating that kind of new um, energy in people. So for example, like Project Hindsight was started literally after a group of astrologers got together over a series of nights over dinners at the 1992 United Astrology Conference. And then they were like, hey, let's start a translation project. And there, somebody else was like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And they went home and did it immediately. And that's sometimes what it takes is just like putting that stuff into action right away instead of putting it off or delaying it. Because at some point, the energy does start to drop off once you go back into normal life. And it's important to sort of like ride that wave. Yep. That's actually a good reminder. I just made a note to myself about something that I was excited about two days ago that I need to not forget for six months. <laughs> yeah. And then you could hear that, you know, people making plans, connecting with people from their local area. I know there are a couple of astrologers out of LA, I think Matthew Williams and Laura Paul, who were like, why is there no astrology group yes. in LA? And they connected at Norwalk and now they're going to start a local meetup in their area. So yeah, I'm so excited it. about that because there hasn't been a good astrology group in LA for a long time, as far as I'm aware, at least there, there's no I, like- Well, I lived in LA not too many years ago. There's a pretty lively group in Santa Monica. Okay. But, you know, if you live, um, I don't know, if you live in Hollywood or you live in K Town or something, like on a Sunday afternoon, that could be 45 minutes an hour away, depending on mm -hmm. traffic. And so, even though it's not that far as the crow flies, crow flight is not a transportation option in LA. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm excited that it was like uh, Laura and Matthew are starting that group, and hopefully, we can post a link to it or something when it's available, but people should. Be able to find it before too long because I know there's just lots of astrologers in LA that want a group, but there's just not anything happening so far, or not a lot happening so far. Uh, so that's a good example of something. And uh, yeah, I don't. Is there anything else? I mean, <laughs> we could debrief Norwalk for a week, but uh, they're probably all the main things. Okay, just want to make sure we're not forgetting anything major. I somehow suspect that we are, but maybe that's okay, and we can we can move into the forecast. Anything, Austin? It, yeah, I'm searching my Scanning. fried memory banks. Okay. Oh, no. oh Chris has a joke in the uh, in the notes that maybe he wasn't planning on making, but I'll make it. Um, so Chris Hett writes, faces of meth equals end of conference. Um, yeah. And that is very true. Um, many <laughs> people, but part of why it's so high energy is like everybody sort of uses their energy for the next fortnight and compresses it into those couple days. Yeah. And it, this is true of every conference I've been to. Once, once you get into like day one and a half, everybody is just up and everybody you talk to is, is up and excited and it's infectious and it's amazing, but you end up, even if you don't stay up late, you're just sort of high on that shared, um, ex you know, extremely dense and energetic mental wavelength. And then when it's finally time to fly home, everybody looks 30 years older. <laughs> yeah. I just remember seeing a lot of the younger astrologers who'd been staying up all night, every night by the end of the week when they're checking out, just looking 
uh, pretty rough by the end of it. Like they had just like lived for thirty, added thirty years to their lifespans, even though they're in their twenties or something. So it was kind of a funny. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I had a photo with the lovely Diana Rose at the very end, like as I was leaving on Tuesday morning after very, like, and I said this to you, Chris, in the pre-show chat, I normally need a certain amount of sleep to function in my everyday life. And there's something about this conference. It is a shared energy situation where I get by on less sleep than in the real world I would be a zombie on. But yeah, Diana, we had a, a last minute selfie on Tuesday morning before I left. And I didn't think I looked that bad while we were taking the photo, but after I saw it on Twitter, I was like, oh man, that's a very tired version of me. Like my glasses are sort of hanging off my eyes and yeah, it's, we, yeah. it's you leave it all out on the field basically. And that's something I'm having to learn. And I think I have to, from this point forward is I'm not in my twenties anymore. And like you stay up all night, like some part of your personality at some point in the week, like you become a, a zombie or at least I do. And probably getting more sleep at astrology conferences cuz like the last night when it was time to fly home like I got a full night's rest and then Lisa and I went to the airport and then I was like cracking jokes and realizing that my personality came back again which uh then made me realize it had been like sort of missing a little bit and that's why it was hard to find my words towards the end which is the downside if you have like a 4 hour workshop to give on the very last day of the conference in terms of uh, being at your most eloquent and everything else. Yeah, I think you um, did quite well. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. But that's one of the reasons also I'm looking forward to the three of us doing that that thing again and having that discussion again. Because also I was like unveiling this idea I've had for a while about like the hermetic or mercurial nature of astrology. In yeah, I wish you'd to- prep me a little bit more on that. I would have. I I didn't have anything to say at the time because I too was having a hard time with my words. And afterwards, right. I was like, "Oh, I have, you know, three half hour lectures that I can give on that." Um, but again, I feel like we introduced uh, um, a discussion with vast scope, and not only can it be followed up on, I think it should be followed up on. There are a lot of really important threads there. That you know, just by themselves would be good for our workshops. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys. Um, let's transition into talking about the forecast for June of 2019, which uh, our listeners have lovingly taken a cue from Austin's yearly forecast, refer to lovingly as the meat grinder. Uh, but let's so really quickly, it's a few promos to get out of the way, and then we will transition into the planetary alignments. Uh, So Kelly, what do you have going on in June? So I am doing a three-part training called An Introduction to Traditional Astrology. So because I've been teaching for a while now, I've got a bunch of students that are switching, if you like, or looking to incorporate some of the older astrological ideas into their practice. So this training starts June 10, and we'll be covering things like whole sign houses, sect, rulerships, uh, what to do with the outer planets, basically like a revisioning, a chance to explore your chart or how you might incorporate some of these older ideas into chart practice. So yeah, that starts June 10. Awesome. Very nice. Uh, Austin, do you have anything going on in June? I don't think so. I mean, I have a lot going on, but um, my year one and year two classes are very midstream right now. Enrollment's not open. Um, I'm not giving any talks. Um, I'm... Oh, I can tell people this. I am 
uh, officially in production with dates and deadlines and money changing hands for the second edition of 36 Faces. I'm not announcing a production, you know, an in in your hands date yet, but that's that's not just something I should be doing anymore. It's something I'm actively doing. Excellent. So, awesome. Yeah, yeah the people have been asking for is, that for a while ever since it went out of print. Yes, yes, they have. At varying levels of politeness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, after I... the first Sorry, year, Chris. it's it goes from like, hey, Austin, where's your book? To like, hey, Austin, where where's the fucking book at this point? Because yeah. they want to read it. The answer is it was available for four years before it sold out. <laughs> right. You, yeah, you but had you don't realize chance. there are more people that know about you now and want a copy. No, everybody- well, not just that. There's just more people that are new to astrology that just got in in the past year and weren't around like five years ago when it came out. Oh, no. And I, I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, flattered and blessed that people are like, that people are um, mad that they don't have the book. That's awesome. That's what I want. Um, but yeah. anyway, yeah, so it's actually, it's in, it's for real in production, definitely uh, be out by Christmas, maybe significantly before that, no promises, but I'm, I'm working on it. Like literally I should check in on it later today. Fantastic. Awesome. Uh, for myself, I don't really have much to promote. I'm going to, uh, Romania next week to give a workshop <laughs> there for their local astrology. I guess that is something major. I should yes. promote the trips. I just thought I just don't have any like classes or anything is what I meant um, to promote. Um, I'm going there to give this awesome workshop basically on mitigating conditions in traditional astrology. Uh, so I will put a link to that in the description page probably for this episode. And then I'm also going to the UK the week after that in the middle of June for the annual conference of the Astrological Association of Great Britain. And I'm going to be giving a talks there on zodiac releasing annual perfections and then a keynote lecture on uh, the history and transmission of astrology at the end of the conference that I'm excited about. Uh, Super exciting. Yeah. So I hope to see lots of people there from the UK or from Europe to fly in for that talk or those talks at the AA conference or the one in Romania. Um, other things to promote. I'm looking for programmers, especially programmers that are good with mobile apps, because uh, I'm starting to think about something in that area. So if there's anybody, I don't, that's kind of a vague thing, but if there's anybody with programming background who might be interested in working on something, please let me know. And then finally, I will be, Lisa and I are going to be at the Baltimore conference. The Baltimore, mm. uh, the National Council for Geocosmic Research is hosting a conference. And that's the other. That's the only other big conference in the U.S. as far as I'm aware that's happening this year. It's taking place August 30th through September 3rd, 2019, so Labor Day weekend in Baltimore, Maryland. And it's actually got a really great lineup of speakers. I'm pretty excited about it. Kelly, you were just reading some of the speakers earlier, right? Yeah, D- Demetra George is going to be there. Uh, Adam Ellenboss, um, Susan Miller will be there. Yeah, Armand Diaz, Priscilla Costello, who was on the podcast previously, Rebecca Gordon, she's awesome. Yeah. Madeline Hillis Deneen, and just like a ton of other Rick Levine, Michael Luton, bunch of people. So I don't want to overlook anybody, but it's the other big conference, basically. And if you're on the East Coast, especially if it's like within drivable distance, then definitely you should attend there or even just come by some night. Sometimes you can buy one day passes. Or sometimes you can just come by and hang out at the hotel at night and meet other astrologers. So I don't think we're doing any sort of podcast event or anything like that. No, well, and there, there yeah. was I hadn't planned on going, and um, y'all asked, well, maybe you know, maybe you could. 
Um, that's like two weeks. That's less than two weeks before so or as above. So I definitely can't make it. Okay. I just realized that. So maybe I'll just do some interviews on my own, which I did not do at Norwac because I didn't have time and kind of regret. But maybe I will at the NCGR conference. Uh, oh, Kelly, you mentioned there is one other astrology conference that's happening. It's more of a smaller regional conference, but it is taking place for people that are in the area. Yeah, the Great Lakes Astrology Conference, otherwise known, I think, as GLAC. Um, I think it's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and that's at the end of June, early July, June 27th to July 1. So it is a smaller sort of regional conference. Um, yeah, which is not a bad thing. Well, it's not a bad it thing. It is super small. Like I've attended it. So I don't want to. I do want to okay. say like the next big major conference. That's true. Is there the is a NCR difference. Yeah, my point is, is just that um yeah, there's value and excitement to huge um events, but there's also an intimacy to um to smaller events, as Norwalk was for many years. And as that's the Norwalk many people came to know and love. So, you know, no no hate for the smaller regional conferences. No, not at all. I always just one of my tensions sometimes with the podcast of a person has never been to a conference is like identifying what are the biggest conferences of the year or qualitatively like which ones are people going to have when we when we come back raving about conferences and the type of conference experience that we think is like the ideal whatever yeah. like platonic form of a conference um uh that's the one i try to work up the most and then also let people know about the other ones but i don't want people if they go to a smaller conference that's a little bit more limited in scope, while it still can be good and a very positive experience, I don't want them to walk away thinking that that's like what every conference is like if they don't have the full plat platonic ideal of a conference <laughs> the very first time. If they get an echo of it rather than the full thing. Definitely. All right. So people can check out that one at greatlakesastrology.com or the NCGR conference at geocosmic.org if you can figure out how to spell that. Um, <laughs> all right, all right, guys. Let's move into the forecast for June of 2019. So we are finally at we're at we're at the halfway mark somehow through 2019, and we are at one of the most active and critical, but also kind of like challenging part of the year in terms of when we did our yearly forecast back in December the segments of the year or the months of the year that we kind of identified as hot spots that really stood out to us uh right if i'm if i'm remembering correctly absolutely and yes. i would say that june begins a process that july will continue and complete um it's really um there are different uh focal points within june and july but they're all literally on the same axis which is the cancer capricorn axis and it's it's going to feel like one process it's not going to feel like separate things and then by the time we get to late july august we're going to be in very different territory yeah the the shifts that we have in terms of planets moving particularly mars and the sun into leo in late july is just going to change the dynamic quite substantially so it is a little bit of a, a, a Cancer Capricorn tunnel that we're entering um, as we come into June. The Cancer Capricorn tunnel, I like that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there are other things to note, but the the focal point for you know uh, for the things most people will remember about June and July are. Um, is what's happening on the Cancer Capricorn axis. So there's been a lot happening in Capricorn 
all year we have this um this trio of the south node and saturn and pluto um which have been within a couple degrees of perfectly conjoin the whole time and now we have and we've had the, the north node Rahu over in cancer for the whole year as well but it's during um it's during june that we get mars mars which entered cancer in mid-may but is really now coming into alignment, coming into opposition with South Node, Saturn, Pluto, and conjoining the North Node, um, which puts a lot of stress on that axis. And then we're also going to have Mercury um, joining mm -hmm. the uh, entering Cancer. What day is that, Kelly? Uh, June 4th. On June 4th, and then adding even more weight to this axis. Um, and so just on a you know, just on a, uh, for those of you who are watching the video, just on a visual level, it's very clear to see where the action is. Yeah, it really is. And I think the the period from June 12th to June 19th is really when, uh, you know, Mars is going to make these oppositions to Saturn and Pluto, make the conjunction to the North Node. And because Mercury is moving quite quickly, well, at least relative to Mars, uh, he's running through that same part of the sky around the same time. So that's where I think... But slowing down and then stationing retrograde and then coming back in July. In July, yes. Yeah. Right. So Mercury enters its shadow at some point later in the month? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's during the, yeah, during the middle of the month, um, late middle. And so, yeah, I, I affectionately dubbed this. I was thinking about titles for this um, in our yearly. And I, I threw out was a that couple like off there. The cuff of, was that off the cuff, by the way, or was that like a pre-planned thing you had already? Well, I had a couple different titles. It's just the other ones didn't, didn't stick. Um, right. There was also, as a Hellraiser reference, there was the, the Lament configuration, um, yeah. which, you know, one person thought was really funny. Um, but yeah, Meat Grinder seems to have stuck. And I named it, you know, and that was, I threw that out there because um, it's hard. It, uh, so getting rid of invisible points like like Pluto and the nodes, not that they're not real, but just looking at what we would see in the sky, mm -hmm. it's a Mars-Saturn opposition. Mars-Saturn mm -hmm. oppositions are hard-nosed. They're hard-edged. I, um, I often have the experience of, the uh, nose to the grindstone cliche, right? Yeah. Where it's like, it's just got to be done. Like they, there's not, there's not time to relax and enjoy because this needs to be done. Um, necessity often looms heavily um, <laughs> and omnipresently just during Mars Saturn times. And so when we add the, the nodes to this, um, the nodes which show us where the eclipses will be very soon and where they were not very long ago. And the nodes, um, they do a lot of things. Um, but among them is they they move things around. They move things forward. They move things backward. They move them back and forth. There's a tremendous change power which is anchored to the nodes. And to have that axis um, more or less perfectly aligned with our hard-nosed Mars-Saturn opposition um, you know, it speaks to uh, it, it speaks to a relatively intense set of experiences, and certainly, I would say, uh, a set of changes which will not necessarily be um, favorable on the day to day pleasure level, but which really need to get done, and will probably make a huge one thing. I once so one thing that was interesting was just going to the conference and talking to people 
um, and what they have coming up in June came up a lot. And um, somebody said, well, my my meat grinder is going to be. And there are yes. a lot of people who are like, I'm leaving the job that I've been at for five years. And I'm not sure what's next, but I know this is the right time. Actually, there were several, there were a couple different, I'm leaving the blank that I've been at for several years. I know I need to leave it, but I'm not entirely certain that it's going to be an easy and smooth transition into exactly what's next. Yeah, and that makes complete sense because practically – Mars Saturn is is sort of these more structural realignments. It's that feeling of maybe frustration or <clears throat> a level of exhaustion, like I can't keep doing this anymore, or I've come to the end of the road of this thing. And one thing that I like about this type of pattern is it forces people to make decisions that they might have been dithering around or ignoring or delaying because of, of fear or uncertainty or worry. And the outcome is that that realignment or restructuring does happen. Um, I do think there's going to be these feelings of, you know, um, being caught between a rock and a hard place and that pressure of, you know, if you're leaving a job, for instance, um, like me, I'm going to be preparing to leave the country. Um, you know, you don't, you can't extend, you know, you, you can't think, oh, I'll just worry about that next week or I'll leave that email to send, you know, I won't do it now. Everything then has to be, as you said, Austin, it's like the deadline is really, is a real thing. It's a firm limit. It's not a permeable membrane that you can push. It's like a drop dead date, basically. Right. It's like hitting a wall where you can't proceed further. And sometimes for some people, this may be like a literal wall, but for most a metaphorical wall in your life where no matter how hard you push or how much you want to overcome that obstacle or challenge or difficulty, Sometimes you have to realize that you can't get around certain obstacles, but instead you have to go another direction or another route. Mm -hmm. Well, and so because this is tied into a Mercury shadow and then retrograde, um, you know, the prepare for delays, Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the processes that people already know they're going to be engaged in during that time are not simple processes. Yeah. Prepare for multiple attempts. Yeah, like it, it might. It, there's a good chance it's going to take longer than, um, than it uh, than it would in an ideal world. Yeah, yeah, I think take longer, require a greater effort, consume more of your energy than anticipated, because it does have that feeling of like, you know, being at the end of a marathon of some kind and just having to keep going to get over the line. Yeah, I actually, um, not very long ago. Uh, I'd committed myself to a deadline on a particular project, um, and then I realized that I was already extremely busy and that if I tried to keep that deadline, um, which was going to be straight through the meat grinder, I was like, that's going to drive me and like, that's going to grind me to bits. And it's okay. Like nothing's ruined if I push that out a month later. Because I was like, you know, just actually budgeting my time to reflect like, oh, no, 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 you're going to, you know, you're not going to have a lot of extra during that time. And so accounting for that ahead of time, I've probably done, I will let you know next month whether past Austin did future Austin a favor, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure he did. He did. Yeah, I always think that idea of time management comes up so much with, with major Saturn configurations as well. And it's that sometimes that necessity of having to make choices or just be really honest and realistic about what you can and can't do and prioritization. You know, if if it's really important, am I going to take a bit longer to make sure it's done well? 
if it ha- if this one thing has to be done now, then all these other things will have to get pushed back or you won't be available for them. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, go ahead. Uh, one of the things, though, that comes al- along with that and one of the significations of both like a Mars opposite Saturn, but also a Mercury retrograde just inherently is like frustration. Because one of the things that's about Mercury retrogrades is they're frustrating because sometimes you do something, but then you have to do it over again. And there's always something frustrating about having to repeat your efforts twice. Uh, and similarly with Mars Saturn, Mars is trying to like, initiate actions and do things with speed and quickness and certainty, whereas Saturn is always trying to slow down and sometimes stop things, which can be frustrating when you're blocked, when you're trying to go down a certain path or go down a certain route. So having like whenever we see overlapping or a doubling up of or an overlap of significations like that, usually it's a good indication that that's going to be a more prominent theme, like themes of frustration. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Mars yes. is in its fall here, right? Mars has yeah. the hardest time in the uh, in cancer. And one ramification of that is that, or one piece of that is that Mars is very sensitive uh, or cancer is an extremely sensitive sign, um, and that it's sometimes really not helpful to be having all of the feelings about something. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's very useful to be able to armor up, get through it, and then have your feelings. Whereas Mars and Cancer facilitates a state where the feelings are, you know, have Mars's force behind them, uh, and they're very immediate. And so, you know, for those of us who are cancer rising or for whom that hits sensitive um, personal points, um, being prepared to to manage um, unhelpful states, um, I, it, that's absolutely part of my, my preparation. Um, because that's a thing I feel to some degree every two years when Mars moves through cancer. And then, you know, um, there's a lot of additional pressure that isn't usually present uh, this year because of Saturn and the nodes and Mercury and Pluto. And, and yeah. Yeah. Mars in Cancer is a really, it's an awkward combination, isn't it? Of sign and planet in terms of how Mars would normally like to just slash and burn or, you know, proceed without consideration necessarily. But in Cancer, I always feel like it gets turned around or he gets, you know, confused by having to navigate feelings in addition to or while trying to achieve goals, basically. Yeah, one thing I've experienced um, with Mars and Cancer is um, not being like sort of dithering too much um, uh, instead of uh, uh, in like working deeper into an anxious or worried state rather than just doing the first task. Like, you know, that, that state of like looking at the mountain of tasks and um, instead of uh, beginning to dig into it, taking more measurements, getting more worried, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that martial adrenal quality is just being used to freak you out more and more rather than to get work done. I find a really good fix, and I think this will be especially helpful this year with Saturn um, in aspect, um, is to just, um, to just plan to do, like when in doubt, do. Like yes. when in doubt, work on the problem. And another, an image that came up earlier when we were just talking about meat grinder, and I think another good um, physical parallel is one of those mining machines, one of those giant drilling mm. machines. 
mm-hmm. um, that you use to bore through mountains. Um, right. So in those instances where, where you can get through the the brick wall, it requires like a huge, a tremendous amount of like effort and condensed, concerted focus and energy to like literally just bore through that wall. In some instances, there will be some people where that wall is not negotiable, and it's like you've run into a mountain that you can't get through. But there will be other people where they might be able to like drill through the mountain. Yeah, well, and there'll be situations where like, oh, I can't go this way, but I can dig under it, and it's going to take that. You know, um, you know, you're gonna have to be a miner. It's gonna take longer, and it's gonna be harder and more complicated than it should be or than you'd like it to be otherwise, but there may be a way to to get around or get under it. Yeah. I've been thinking about what to do um with myself during or how to structure my my time ahead of time when I'm not in moment with whatever mo- with whatever comes up, um, to set myself up for optimal outcomes. And I think I'm just going to schedule myself really um the word uh, I'm going to set a heavy schedule for myself and set a schedule for um, restoration and for exercise and this and that and just like when I'm in doubt of what to do it'll just be like oh this is on the schedule do that on Tuesdays you do bag work and then stretch for 20 minutes right <laughs> rather than like I don't know what do I here's here's the problem that I don't think is confined to just me with Mars and cancer because it's Mars in the domicile of the moon and to a certain degree acting on the moon's orders it's what do I feel like doing? Yeah. Well, and then you search your feelings. And if your feelings aren't in a great place, then you're just searching your feelings rather than just doing. So I'm trying to spare myself um, that this time. Yeah, I think yeah. planning is everything to help circumvent that, that if you if you put, you know, if the night before you set what you're going to do the next day or, you know, week ahead, then you take out that you can you can help manage at least what do i feel like doing just this is the task in front of me and also remembering that you don't always have to feel like doing things to do a good job at them and for them to be useful to have being done this like the solution to an unhappy state of feeling might be the accomplishment that comes from doing it anyway yeah it's hard um though one of the things that's so hard sometimes even with astrology is like knowing what is a surmountable difficulty versus an insurmountable difficulty and being able to identify that in this instance. Because like we were talking about, there might be certain instances that people are going to run into with this where the Mars-Saturn opposition manifests in just like a stop stop sign or like a red light that you cannot pass through and like a brick wall that you cannot go through and that you have to go a completely different direction. But for other people, it is more the extreme exertion of focused energy may allow you to drill through that wall, um, but it's going to require much more of yourself and much more energy output than it would at any other time to get through that. Um, but identifying whether it's a, like an insurmountable difficulty or a surmountable one might be kind of challenging or might be kind of tricky or difficult. Yeah. Well, and um, I think everybody's going to get a ratio of both in different areas. Um, a of ver- varying intensity depends on where it hits you. But you know, if you can't go one way, then that means you need to figure out a different way. Or there's mm-hmm. always something you can do with your time. There's always something to do. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard sometimes with astrology because some people have a tendency to want to just like push through no matter what and then don't know 
what to do when they do reach an insurmountable difficulty that they just like can't you can't push through no matter what amount of will you exert on the subject due to the, your circumstances versus there might be other people that might already be more inclined to run into even a light obstacle and just to like fold or try to like walk around it or go a different direction and not deal with the problem head on and so it's like you don't almost want to tell people not to cuz there there's different circumstances where you might need to really do the opposite of what you're normally inclined to to do in this circumstance or this scenario yeah and so um you know because we're speaking about just configurations that are in the sky this month and we don't have reference to an individual person's natal chart it's impossible to make that distinction from this level of elevation and mm. requires some discernment on the on the part of the person on the part of all of us living our lives which version is necessary um, but what I, I I I would say that defaulting on even if you can't do that do something you know even if you have to wait there do something rather than just doing the awful version of waiting where you're really activated <laughs> but don't have anything to do with the energy and you'll recognize those states um, if you find yourself in them you know it's not these are um, uh, again, the uh, a lot of this is not uh, just as it's not subtle visually on the chart. It's not going to be that subtle uh, for most people in person. And so, if it's like time to stop or time to grind, it'll probably be relatively clear. Yeah, one of the significations of Saturn that's really funny that shows up very prominently in ancient texts, but I don't think it comes through as strongly in modern times is inaction. And like the scenario where a person doesn't take action, or where sometimes their downfall is not taking action when they should, or being late to take action when they they should, um, and and that's a funny. That's part of the reason why, because Mars is of course the opposite, and like taking action very quickly and sometimes too quickly without forethought or moving into something without that. Without that, and it's interesting that those are the two primary fundamental archetypal divisions that we're running into with this opposition and the way that different people are going to respond to that based on if they normally go in a more Saturn route or a more Mars route inherently uh, based on their chart in general. Yeah, and I think that we can say in terms of topic areas that um, on a, if, if what there is to do is, not, is a, a somewhat impersonal and is more accomplishing a task-based than do as a default. If it is inherently social and emotional, you probably do want to step carefully um, rather than just grinding through, you know, whatever, you know, whatever drama uh, is afoot. And there will be on a general level, the drama is definitely afoot this month. People are, this configuration is going to put a, a lot of people in sub opt, what do they say, inside their feelings. Mm -hmm. And that um, if you are inside your feelings and you know you're talking to somebody else who's also inside your feelings, might not be a good time to really get into whatever that topic is. Yeah, the other thing that occurs to me on this too is that, you know, the opposition Mars Saturn, it'll be about 18 degrees Cancer Capricorn around the 14th, 15th of the month. Saturn has, this will be the second time Saturn's triggering that specific degree. So if this is potentially quite active for an individual, you know, Saturn went to 18 Capricorn back in early March. So 
the satin component or the satin end of the opposition is something that won't be brand new or won't be a surprise. It'll likely be something that has been in your field of awareness, if not in your sort of regular life already for a few months. And the Mars component coming in is is a little bit of aggravation or the heat getting turned up or a sense of urgency coming into a situation that maybe you've been playing out a little bit. And I definitely agree the the drama and the the emotional component and the frustration, um, but it it is it there is sort of that setup that's been building, if you like, that Mars is sort of coming in and and just saying, you know, punctuating that particular mid June period with this longer story that's been going on since early March. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Mars component for the the Mars Saturn opposition started about May fifteenth when Mars moved as into soon Cancer. As Mars. Yeah. And I could already see the shift in some people's lives where like a set of circumstances started building up at that point, which will probably end up culminating a month later in the middle of June when Mars completes the exact opposition with Saturn because the sign-based opposition began several weeks earlier in the middle of May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Anna, I, I think it would be useful to just jump to a granular, uh, granular level really quickly. Um, this configuration is going to be um, strongly activated when the moon is in Cancer and in uh, in Cancer because that's where half of it is, and then a week later when it's in Libra, um, because then the moon will be squaring both sides, and then when the moon's in Capricorn, and there will be even though this is a running theme, there will be some great days where the moon is totally unconfigured to any of this stuff. Um, like one of the things that's interesting is we have uh, Jupiter and and Venus pretty much off angle um, from the meat mm. grinder, um, you know, and so we'll have days where the moon is only aspecting benefics, and it'll you know be blessed respite or just off topic in a great way. But when it's you know when it's on, it's on, you know, and so starting with June fourth when the moon uh, moves into Cancer, like the moon is going to make a conjunction or an opposition to every member of this and make it very clear. Yeah. That's, that's a really great. beautiful point. And reminds me that my like travel dates are exactly when the moon is in Cancer and Capricorn. So thanks for that reminder. Well, we <laughs> all traveled to Norwalk. Not, not everybody who attended the conference, but all three, well, five of us, because you guys came with your partners. We all traveled to Norwalk on the uh, moon in Capricorn. Yes, and there, I have a delightful uh, anecdote about that in the soon-to-be-released live Q and A. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Um, one piece that we're not that. talking a lot about because it's more of a long-term thing that's sitting in the background and magnifying all of this is uh, Pluto is so close to Saturn right now; it's within like two or three degrees from twenty-two Capricorn, with Saturn being at like nineteen Capricorn, nineteen and eighteen that as soon as not only is that creating not just a mars saturn opposition but it's like a saturn pluto conjunction and then as soon as mars gets clear of saturn it immediately heads into an opposition with pluto uh for the next little bit in june so we're not just talking about a mars saturn opposition here but it's being magnified by uh the presence of pluto within a similar set of degrees Yep, and by the nodes where we'll get eclipses in July. Right. Uh, yeah, and for June specifically on that, Chris, um, 
the Mars-Pluto opposition, 22 Cancer Capricorn, Mercury opposes Pluto same day, and the moon is in Capricorn. So that there is sort of this 24-hour period around June 19th where I know Austin and I, I, I look forward to the moon in Sag, moon in Aquarius days at the moment because the moon is is off, is away from this. Right. But we, we do have this 24-hour, you know, moon just triggering everything in the middle. Well, and th- that's actually something Chris and I um, spoke about for a little while on during our workshop was how the concept of aversion or, or planets being unconfigured yeah. um, by aspect can be a godsend electionally. <laughs> They're like, right. oh, so yes. I don't really have, so I can take a day off of that. Awesome. Yes. Or I can it, start my business with not that as the primary focus. Yeah. Like the with, idea of no aspect of like there being sectors where there's nothing going on in terms of the relationship between two planets. And sometimes that can be a good thing when you keep the good stuff prominent and and the challenging stuff um, not not connected with not that. So or not right. It allows that. you in an electional context to de-emphasize things you would like to de-emphasize. Right. Well, and we're lucky at the moment that not only, you know, when the moon is off topic of Saturn um, and the Capricorn Cancer Palava, it's actually on topic of the Jupiter. So, you know, moon in Sag, great, doesn't have to deal with Capricorn, but getting Jupiter blessings. Yeah, the... Right. Um, yeah, the the period where the moon is in Sag, it's not only full, but it's conjunct Jupiter, and then and so you know what a saving, what a what a nice, what a nice thing to insert in this month, right? Just that little bit of um, that little dot of um, Yin hiding in the Yang, or vice versa. And what's but what's funny is that these are sequential, right? So you have a couple yes. days of yes. full moon, Jupiter and Sag, and then moon and Capricorn opposite Mars, conjunct the South Node, conjunct Saturn, conjunct Pluto, opposite Mercury, right? Yeah. Um I so love it, that. this is a both end month for sure. So yeah. that full moon is right right there. It's right in the middle. Uh, it it kind of f- splits. We have the Mars Saturn opposition, then we get the Sag full moon, then we have the Mars Pluto opposition. So the the full moon takes place on the 17th of June at 25 degrees of Gemini, right? Yes. Yep. 25 Gemini. And weirdly, that's also um, around the same time simultaneously when two of our major outer planet aspects are taking place this month, one of them being the Jupiter-Neptune square. And I believe this is the second one that we've had this year in a series of three Jupiter-Neptune squares, and that goes exact on the 16th of June uh, yes. from 18 Sagittarius to 18 Pisces. And then a couple days later on the 18th, we have the exact Saturn-Neptune sextile uh, from 18 degrees of Capricorn to 18 degrees of Pisces. Yeah. And I I mean, there's, there's, there's a bit to say about that, but I also noticed when I was looking through June that the 18 degree point in a number of different signs is really activated this month. Um, the Ju- Neptune's going to square there and the Jupiter-Neptune square happens around that degree. But the Mars-Saturn opposition is also around 18 degrees of Cancer Capricorn. So if you have chart factors like an angle or an ascendant, uh, or you know the sun or the moon or what have you around 18 degrees of whatever sign. Not every sign is going to be triggered, but a number of them around that particular point are going to be. Definitely, and for the the whole Capricorn Cancer range, that's like 
it's like the hot spots are 18 Capricorn through like 22 Capricorn or 18 degrees of cardinal signs through 22 degrees of cardinal signs because 18 of course is where the Mars Saturn opposition not to mention the Mercury Saturn opposition goes exact but then a few degrees later around 22 is where the Mars Saturn opposition and the Mercury Saturn opposition go back uh, go exact and that's also roughly around the degree where the Mars where Mars catches up to an overtake or Mercury catches up to an overtakes Mars around 21 degrees of Cancer. Mhm. Yes. Yeah, and this is I mean uh, so the as far as precision goes, yeah, that 5 degrees 18 to 22 um is absolutely hot with 18 probably being the hottest of those. Generally speaking, you know, this one's for the Cardinals. Right. Um, just like you know, the um, our fixed placements got it early. Fixed got it last year. Um, this is you know the 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 early, the mid the mid late cardinals get it this year. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do think the Jupiter square Neptune piece is uh, worth a brief mention because it is one of those in the background kind of themes. But for people that are more mutable in their chart focus, that's something that is really going to be stirring them. Uh, we had the first Jupiter-Neptune in January. We're going to have the third one in September. So it is a bit of a background theme around imagination, around inspiration, but also occasionally about misreading situations or being confused. Uh, so I thought that was worth – because it, it's happening just the day before the full moon. Uh, so it's going to add into the the emotional quality and the sensitive the sensitive nature of that period, I think. Yeah, well, and with uh, the Jupiter Neptune, right? With Jupiter so strong, it's um, it's in a sense, it's making Jupiter, it's making that um, that uh, that that favorable Jupiterian successful outcome even bigger or dreamier. And if you can, you know, if you can keep your bubbles from popping through this period of time, then uh, you're doing very well indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've really, you know, we're focusing on the middle part of the month because that's where all the action is. But did we mention the first lunation of the month is actually that new moon in Gemini that takes place super early on the third? We nope. need to circle back to that. We kind of dived just into like the, skipped everything and like we just went jumped. straight to the headlines. Right. So not as notable, but worth mentioning still. We have a new moon at. Looks like 12 degrees of Gemini, which is taking place on June 3rd. There it is. Um, what else is going on? Venus is still in Taurus at this point. Mercury is still in Gemini. Oh, right. This is so this is actually really close to the electional charts for the month. Yes. Which, yeah, this will be uh, your first election. I could use as a segue to mention, unless you guys want to talk first about the lunation or have any thoughts uh, first. I mean, the the Gemini new moon feels it's, it, it is one of those little reprieve things, if you like, in that uh, it's just got this very strong Gemini feeling because it's in Gemini, the ruler Mercury is in Gemini. So I kind of like the new moon is on the first Monday of the month. It just really feels like take that chance to plan out the next few weeks. Um, you know, there'll be a lot of ideas tossing around, uh, being floated around and discussed. And if there's anything that you can kind of lock in, we will have a little bit of that Jupiter-Neptune involvement. Um to the new moon, but uh, I think it's, I don't know, it's kind it's sort of neutral, if that makes sense, rather than dramatically difficult. 
No, it's not difficult at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of light. It's like, let's just enjoy that. Or yeah. like, you know, use use a moment of peace to plan for times of war. <laughs> um, you know, but like, you know, if you have a period of time where, you know, life's just not coming at you, but you're pretty sure um, that there's going to be some stuff happening over the next several weeks. Um, you know, you can use moments of where your mind is tranquil and in a good place to set yourself up to deal with whatever better or to give yourself a program where if stuff happens, like you plan for that and you've already got answers to some of those questions. Yeah, coming up with your option B. I mean, Gemini deserves a little brief mention. We have the new moon in Gemini this month and uh, around June 8th, Venus moves into Gemini. So the Gemini part of your chart and whatever that corresponds to in your life is getting a little bit of an infusion of energy or influx that does have certainly like a sweeter quality to it. Yeah. One of the go ahead. core uh, meanings of Gemini that I've only recently been, been getting reacquainted with, which is such a funny basic signification, but for some reason I had forgotten about it for uh, a long time. But like Gemini, especially Gemini sun signs really like to talk. <laughs> and uh, talk and talk and talk, and they don't are not always great or very adept at listening, but they excel at talking, and that means a lot of different things. I mean, that's not that sounds that's not actually necessarily meant to be negative or, or snide, but because that can be an asset, and it's something that some other signs with certain energies are not as good at. And that gives you both like some of the downsides as well as some of the, the positive sides of that. But they like to and are very adept at talking. And somehow, sometimes that energy of Gemini is good for putting into use in instances where you need to turn up the output or like turn up the volume of something that you're doing, especially if it involves like communicating something. Yeah, absolutely. Is yeah, that totally. a is that an experience that you guys have had? You've never never met like a Gemini that likes to well, talk. Well, I do. Well, I have a Gemini to... Moon ruling my ascendant, so I'm sort <laughs> and of. And I, I was and... going to say, as a, I grew up, three of my siblings are Gemini Moon siblings, and you can. So that's why that. you've always known how to handle me. Correct. You're like just another brother of mine, or a sister, not, obviously not like a sister. I'm your like very slightly younger brother. Very slightly younger. That's exactly it. Uh yeah, and it's I don't know. I, my experience is the Gemini moon moons are also very good talkers. It's not that I don't think they're good at listening because all three of my Gemini moon siblings, you know, you, you can certainly talk with them. You're not they're not just talking at you. Mm -hmm. um, but what I've realized is to end the conversation with them, I have to be quite abrupt, which is right. not how I would normally, you know, I have to just say, okay, I've got to go now or, okay, stop. I've got to, you know, cause the talking just is never, is never ending. If we, you know, don't my one, my one sister, you know, our husbands just know that if we get on the phone, it'll be two to three. We'll say it's a short call and it's two to three hours. We'll try to keep it under two hours and we never do. <laughs> right. That's really funny. I mean, what would be the, the sign if there's a sign that's better at listening and not good at talking, like what would that be? Like which well, sign encapsulates that energy better? I think the water signs tend to be better at listening. Okay. Um, and more reluctant to talk, or you have to draw them out a little bit more. So if a water sign something is with an air sign something, the air sign is going to sort of lead the conversation or be, take the initiative a bit more. 
that makes sense. But I, I don't know if you guys would disagree. You might have a different No, take. no. I, I was just trying to go through my head and, and figure out whether... So I think Pisces is the chattiest um, in the most circumstances um, think? of the water signs. Um, okay. Cancer, signs. if when you get past whatever boundaries will be the chattiest ever, but most people won't encounter people with strong cancer that way. Most people don't get past, people don't get past the hard shell. And then Scorpio, Scorpio is definitely, you know, constantly filtering what is and isn't being said and listening intently. And so I don't know if the result is less chatty or more than cancer, um, but I would say it would be down to those two for um, listening, listening strength over... Um, verbal projection strength totally i mean sorry chris one of the things i always uh admire and wish i had a gemini moon because a lot of my gemini moon friends have a way with language uh that seems to exceed my own uh either in terms of uh, i have several gemini moon friends that are just good with other languages in terms of like learning ancient languages and translating texts or Having that sort of versatility with language, uh, but sometimes also like just a facility with language in terms of like eloquence and articulation um, as a as a thing, like you know my mm -hmm. you know and and beautiful allusions like meat grinder for example. Yes, yeah. I mean, and Austin, you have a beautiful turn of phrase. Thank you. A spectacular um, turn of I, phrase. I think something I share with I, I also have a lot of Gemini Moon colleagues. Um, I think something that's there for all of us is um, one, a curiosity about all the different ways you could say the same thing and how mm -hmm. it would mean something slightly different. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's a certain comfort and delight in playing with language that it's a little bit of a game because you could say it 30 ways. So which way do you say it? How does it sound? There, I would say, yeah, so curiosity and an experience of play um, with language is maybe where that's coming from. I like right. it. I mean, you know, Gemini is one of the three loud voiced signs. So I think they do tend to have that expressiveness kind of down mm -hmm. um, relative to most of the other signs. So, and that is the that is the an encapsulization of the energy that we're feeling around the very beginning of the month with this new moon, which is interesting, and, and it's one of the ways again that so much. Some, I was talking with somebody about this, but just how astrologers, you know, the arbitrariness of dividing things up by month, like calendar month versus mm -hmm. by astrological um, eras, or or dividing things up astrologically, dividing time up astrologically and the difference between that because this first very first part of the month like the first week or so just seems a little distinctly different than what we hit by the middle of the month oh no i mean what the moon will go into cancer a day and a half after being in gemini it'll get introduced as soon as the moon goes into cancer okay it's yeah, going to be like new moon in gemini then the day after and then right into it well yeah and look at this mercury, mercury Goes into yeah. cancer the next day. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you got to take that Gemini Moon vibe while you can get it. Yeah, and the Taurus Moon vibe, which comes right before that too, which is great. The first weekend in June. With I, the I moon believe there might be uh, an auspicious an election, election living right around Greece. there. Yeah, let's get into that. So Lisa and I recorded the auspicious elections podcast, and she found four or five electional charts for June of 
2019. And um, I'm about to release that actually today for patrons, today being uh, whatever it is, May 29th, 29th so, yeah. so two or three days before the month begins. Problem that we ran into is that our best elections were at the very beginning of the month, around the time of this like new new moon in Gemini and other fun sort of light stuff before everything gets really heavy in the middle of the month and even going through towards the end. Once we get in, start getting into Mercury retrograde conjunct Mars territory in July, so um, I we're going to present two electional charts for this month because the first one and the main one that we wanted to highlight takes place super early at the very start of the month, literally within the first hours of June. Um, and that's on June 1st, 2019, uh, starting at about 4.30 in the morning with Taurus rising. So the problem with that, of course, is that that's so early in the month that I'm sure a ton of people are going to not listen to this episode in time to be able to take advantage of that election. Um, and as a result of that, I will give you guys one other electional chart that you can use this month that takes place on June 7th, around 7.18 p.m. with Sagittarius rising, uh, but we like that one a little bit less than this one. So here's the chart for June 1st at 4.30. You want to put about 20 degrees of Taurus rising. So, so calculate the chart for your location, for whatever city you're living in, and then um, adjust the time, set it for 4.30 initially, but adjust the time until the ascendant in your city is at about 20 degrees of Taurus. And when you do that, you should get Venus right on the degree of the ascendant, also at 20 degrees of Taurus. And this is, it's 4.30 in the morning, so this should be a bit before sunrise, so it should still be a night chart. So this is kind of a this is basically a Venus election, which if you're doing like magical practices and other things like Austin does, you would be using this as like a Venus election where you're really trying to capture and encapsulate the power of Venus while it's in its own sign and then make it the focal point of the chart by making Venus rising and also it, putting Well, let me just add I think this would be good for a petition but not but probably not for a talisman. Sure. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily recommending this for talisman or magical purposes, but more for electional purposes, especially if you have something um, that you would like to do of a Venusian nature, which could be an artistic or creative uh, sort of project of some sort. But really, again, with all of our electional charts, we kind of kind of try to shoot for charts that are generally all around decent electional charts that mark most of the boxes that you're supposed to mark when you're picking out any sort of electional chart, which is make sure the ruler of the ascendant is well-placed and make sure the moon as the secondary general significator for the entire chart is relatively well-placed. And in both instances, we have that going here since we have both of those planets basically in the first house, in first whole sign house in Taurus, in a night chart, and more or less applying to a conjunction with each other so that if you go out literally if you go outside on the morning of this election when you're initiating whatever you need to initiate or start that morning you will literally see the moon and venus rising over the eastern horizon and emerging from underneath the earth at the time that you initiate that election and that's part of what we're going for um in sort of making symbolically things in the electional chart good but also 
focusing on Venus as a, as a strong part of the election. So, yeah. oh, I, yeah, I was just going to point out the um, the second house also looks good in this chart. So does the eighth. So does the fifth, and to some degree the eleventh as well. Um, because in this chart we we do have three planets in. We actually have four planets in their sign of rulership. Mm-hmm. I'm going to discount Saturn because Saturn's in too much trouble by aspect um, mm-hmm. to operate smoothly. Uh, also, Saturn is a malefic and strong malefic or something you have to play carefully with. But and, and Mercury, it's a night chart. Yeah, but Mercury, you know, Mercury's separated from the sun. So Mercury is going to be visible in a lot of locations. It's in its own sign. It's just got, it's configured with Jupiter. Jupiter's in its own sign. Um, there are a couple things to love here. Yeah. And it's tricky yeah. because we often have a hard time. People ask us for good like elections that are good general electional charts, but then they also ask us to also make it good for financial matters. And it's often tough to make the the first house and the second house and the rulers of those houses in good shape in the chart, in their own signs or exaltations, and and free from the aspect of malefics, or at least hard aspect. But this is just one of the weird charts that happens this year where we happen to be able to check off a bunch of those boxes so that it's not just a good general chart, but it also is relatively uh, decent uh, for financial matters. So of course, we, we don't know your natal chart, so we cannot say for sure if this is going to be personally good for you. But as a standalone electional chart, it's got some, some very nice things going for it in those areas. Um, the one area that it's not that great for potentially is because this is a night chart, Saturn is going to be the most challenging planet in the chart. Um, so since it's in the ninth house, it may not be that great for ninth house matters pertaining to, let's say, like long distance travel interactions with that which is foreign or even potentially um, educational or uh, religious matters may be a little bit problematic, whatever that means for you in your life, based on the symbolism of the ninth house being a little bit tricky uh, in this night chart with Saturn in the ninth. Although there are some mitigations since Saturn's in its own sign, Venus is actually pretty closely trining Saturn, although it's separating but that is a positive sort of mitigating or offsetting indication in the chart uh, and so on and so forth. What do you, what do you think, Kelly? What would you yeah, use I, this for? I, what would I use this for? Um, I might have to wake up very early, but it would be right. nice. Yeah. The moon Venus in Taurus is, is worth getting up for. Um, something to do with beauty or pleasure, maybe something to do with a romantic relationship as well. Like if you, you know, I don't know. Maybe you wake up and have a breakfast date, or I'm not sure. Use your imagination. Yeah, I don't, if you wake up your partner um, <laughs> at like 4:30 in the morning in order to uh, do something with them, they may not be that happy. So I'm not sure. It may not go down well. I mean, if you had a creative project that you were hoping to earn some money from, because as Austin said, you know, the second house is looking quite nice here, as is the eighth. Right. Um, if you wanted to buy some luxury piece of jewelry that you were going to order online, perhaps um, you could also do that. You know, what was really funny was last month watching whatever that Sunday was when they had there was the grand fire trine and mm-hmm. watching on social media like all of the astrologers like yeah. <laughs> launching stuff almost simultaneously that day, um, sort of not very inconspicuously. Yes. Well, as yeah, as electional knowledge and technique becomes more widespread, I think we're going to see a lot of people, an increasing number of people 
all mysteriously launching their things on the same day. So right. I blame yeah. you, Chris. Mysteriously. You know, the, the good days didn't used to be as crowded. Right. Not as much traffic. Well, if we start seeing like big stuff, then that's going to start raising some eyebrows. If there's like presidential campaigns launched or famous weddings of like royal couples on those days, then we'll we'll start having some. But that's know. kind of how you know, right? Like when a political person launches something on a pretty crap day astrologically, that's like, no, they don't have an astrologer in their right. team. Right. But yeah. there's a woman I follow who's really great sort of for business tips, Marie Folio, and she has just launched a book recently. And I thought it was quite suspicious that her book was launched on the sun Mercury Kazemi in Gemini. Um, and it made me sort of think, oh, she's probably got an astrologer in her crew of advisors or support team. I think that her astrologer failed to adequately consider the condition of the moon on that day. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And in the audience, because we have a live audience of patrons who are attending the recording of this episode who are on the live access tiers. And Veronica Gledhill says in the comments that she points out that with Uranus and Taurus, it could be um, very interesting in terms of new trends and innovations that happen aesthetically uh, across the board in a tangible sense, which is a really good point because this is the first time. This is some of like the first crop of elections that we've done any time in recent memory or any memory at all in the past like 80 years where doing a Taurus rising election with Venus in Taurus and the moon in Taurus means that Uranus is also in the first house. And that energy could be a little bit problematic for certain circumstances since usually Taurus is like a fixed sign which are good at things that you want to make permanent or long lasting or stable. And Uranus itself is a little bit like unstable sometimes, but because it's so well placed, because everything else is so well placed in this chart, you may just get some of the more positive manifestations of Uranus's significations in things like she was saying, innovation and um, uh, creating new trends and other things like that. Yeah, I I considered this chart um, for a while um, for uh, electing a. Sphere and Sundry's Venus and Taurus series, and I, I decided against it for a couple reasons, which are you know my my priorities for electing are different when it's a planetary magic thing than a general electional chart. Um, we yeah. decided to go at a different point while Venus was in Taurus, where the Moon had a little bit more light. Um, but this is a fine uh, electional chart for a variety of purposes. Brilliant. All right. So that's the best one we can find this month, but it's literally over and you will have missed it if you are anything more listening to this episode anything more than like four hours into June. So as a result yeah. of that, and as a result of not like screwing people who were looking for waiting for the good electional chart this month for the public one that we release, here's one other backup chart that we're going to throw out for people, which takes place on June 7th. At about seven eighteen p.m. with Sagittarius rising, so set the chart for June seventh, and then adjust the chart in your city or location um, until the ascendant is, let's say, somewhere around, uh, uh, I guess, like four degrees of Sagittarius rising, give or take. It's actually kind of negotiable. The main thing is you just want Sagittarius rising. And you want to do it before sunset, before it switches to being a night chart, which does happen at some point 
after you get to about 17 degrees of Sagittarius rising because the sun is at 17 Gemini, so it will set at that point if you go any later. So just do Sagittarius rising, then Jupiter is the ruler of the ascendant, and it's in the first house in Sagittarius in its own sign. Now, of, co of course, unfortunately at this point in the year, even though we still have Jupiter in Sagittarius for another few months, at this point in the year it's not those like perfect flawless Jupiter elections that we were getting in the early part of the year because now Jupiter is retrograde, which is a little bit of a downgrade and a little bit of a drawback in, in terms of making that the ruler of the ascendant and could make things delayed or drawn out a little bit more than they might be otherwise in terms of initiating things. But that being said, it still doesn't mean that just because Jupiter is retrograde, you absolutely can't use it in electional charts. Uh, it just means that it's not going to be the flawless type of Jupiter election that we had earlier this year. Uh, so Jupiter's in Sag in the first house, ruling the first house and the fourth house, and the moon is up in Leo at about 17 degrees, give or take, of Leo in the ninth whole sign house. And in most locations and time zones, it should be applying to a trine with Jupiter at 19 degrees of Sagittarius. So um, that's pretty favorable. We've got not just the ruler of the ascendant, but also the moon in relatively positive condition in terms of the benefics. Uh, this chart is definitely more challenging in terms of the financial axis. Um, we've already lost, since we're a week into June, Mercury is no longer in Gemini, and instead it's moved into Cancer, so it's already moving into that configuration with Mars and Saturn and Pluto. And that Mars, Saturn, Pluto, Mercury axis has shifted in this chart to the second and the eighth houses. So it's not a great, super great chart for financial matters in the same way that the other one was or the previous chart was, uh, but it is generally an okay type Jupiter election, and it's sort of similar as a as a quasi almost grand fire trine chart to the fire trine chart that we had last month, except there just isn't anything in Aries to complete the grand trine. Instead, it's just like focusing on the moon Jupiter trine between Leo and Sagittarius, but. Two out of three fire signs ain't bad. <laughs> well, and Aries, because its ruler is in such a problematic condition, is something I think we could um, happily do without for now. For now. Sure. Sure. So, Having that the moon applying to the ascendant ruler Jupiter is, is really nice. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, especially when you need to initiate something and you need a, a wave of enthusiasm and energy to carry you through initially, it's nice to have that Jupiter-Leo fire sign energy really as a the focal point of an election. Also, nice waxing moon starting yeah. to get some real light. Yeah, that was one of the issues with the, the first election. That was one of the only major drawbacks is the moon was at the very end of its cycle and in the extreme sort of waning end of the cycle, which can sometimes not be great for initiating New ventures, whereas this is a nice uh, waxing new moon just after the new moon, or nice waxing moon where the moon is separated enough that it's pretty much perfectly sextile the sun at this point in this chart. Yeah, in the um, uh, so one of the ways that I've seen the uh, the lunar cycle divided in terms of you know is this going to be useful or not is sixty after sixty degrees out and waxing is prime time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's something about the moon just kind of really quickening from this point forward. Yeah, it's nice. It's it's built steam at this point and is yeah. still building. Yeah. 
Yeah, so those are the, the two charts that we're going to highlight this month in terms of the public charts that we're putting out there for the forecast episode. Uh, Lisa Scheim and I recorded a full episode on electional charts for the month of June, which was like a 40-45 minute discussion that we release as a podcast each month through uh, our page on Patreon. And that's something that you can access by signing up and becoming a patron on the 5 or $10 tiers. And then you get access to the recording as soon as it's released at the end of each month. And I think we have four or five electional charts during the course of June. And, and most of them are definitely clumped up at the beginning, but I think we were able to pull some out just in case you need to do things, just in case you're not going to like stay home and like get in a bunker and um, huddle at home for the rest of the month. If you still need to continue living your life and doing anything, then we did find a few charts that you can you can use for later in June. So you can find out more information about that at uh, theastrologypodcast.com slash auspiciouselectionspodcast, or just click the elections tab at the top of the website to find out more information. All right, so those are our elections. They're both at the beginning of the month. That brings us back to the forecast. Um, where are we at at this point, and what other major things do we need to touch on here? Do we need to move more towards the the end or the later part of the month, or is there anything that we overlooked or missed from earlier. Anything you want to chime in on, Austin? Well, so right after that electional chart, we actually get uh, Venus moving into Gemini, which, you know, is a tonal shift, but is not, um, it doesn't, that doesn't really time any of our big moments. Um, It's not really something to worry about. Um, It's also not like so amazing that you need to jump on it. But it's worth noting Venus uh, will be in Gemini from what is it, the ninth forward or the eighth forward? Yeah, it looks I think like it's the, the June eighth. Uh, like I'm animating, it looks like it's the ninth. Let me see. Oh, maybe Mountain. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, maybe you're right. Eighth Eastern, but it, it could be late at night. Um, um, no, once again, Kelly, you're right, and I am wrong. I defer to your superior ephemeris <laughs> knowledge. Um, June eighth. Yeah, I agree, Austin. It's a tonal shift. And while it's not going to change everything in June, it is one of the lighter influences that we can fall back on or enjoy when the moon is is aspecting um, Venus in Gemini at certain times when it's not aspecting the Cancer Capricorn tunnel. Right. So let's see. So the moon's in Virgo at that point. And then then we have, as we, especially as the moon moves into Libra in only a few days after that, we have our headline configurations tightening up and the poor moon in Libra has to square all that. So that'll be, you know, um, how do we put that? Um, that will um, spotlight those configurations. And then after that, the moon moves into Scorpio where, you know, there will be feelings abundant. It's a, it aspects all of them, but from trine and sextile, but it's the moon ruled by Mars and it's mm. the place of the moon's fall. So there's some trickiness there. Um, and when we get through that, we're in, we get our, our, our full moon in Sag with Jupiter reprieve. Yes. Which is around June 16th. Well, so, yeah, which which will be well earned at that point. We will all be looking forward to it. It's funny the and- alternations at different points in the month between the moon being like super tied into all of that stuff and triggering some of it versus the moon 
going into like down phases of being configured to the the positive Jupiter stuff? Yeah, when I when I was writing um, my dailies, when I was analyzing, you know, everything by the hour, uh, I was really struck by that. It's like, oh, it's on, and you know, and it's on for days, and then it's just off for days, and right. then it's on. It's like holding um, your breath and then like exhale, exhaling for like a couple of days, and then holding your breath. Yeah, or just like yeah, or just yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and then after the the moon's in Sag, and we get that beautiful full moon, which we've talked about then the moon does Capricorn, right? Yes. And it's on angle with everything. And then it goes into Aquarius, off angle again, but trining Venus and sextiling Jupiter, right? <laughs> right? It is. Uh, yeah. It feels a bit like this sort of up and down yo-yo roller coaster thing. It's like stark alternation. Yeah, and that, um, for me, that was comforting because what I remembered about the month was like, oh, that's when the meat grinder gets started. And I was like, in the, but then in looking at it uh, on a, at a, at a granular scale, um, it was reassuring to be like, okay, but that's not the whole month. There are lots of days that aren't yeah. really about that. There are reprieves. Can we can we come up with a alternative metaphor then to meat grinder for characterizing the month? Maybe drawing on that sort of stark alternation of contrasting positive and challenging indications. Like what is like that. Um, I mean, it's not. Well, I didn't name not, June the meat grinder. I named that configuration the meat grinder, which I'm yeah. very happy with. And the meat grinder, of course, continues well into July. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things, and let's mention that really briefly because it's interesting, and we did shortly already, but that moon or that Mercury Mars conjunction that goes exact around the 17th and 18th at about 21 Cancer. Um, is interesting because that's the first of three conjunctions between Mercury and Mars because Mar Mercury after that point goes into its shadow and then starts slowing down and stationing to station retrograde. And not to get too ahead of ourselves in terms of giving away the forecast for July, but um, Mercury slows down so much that this really unique and odd thing happens that doesn't happen very often, which is that Mercury slows down so much that eventually Mars catches up with it and overtakes and conjoins Mars at four degrees of Leo uh, towards the end of the first week of July with the second conjunction between Mercury and Mars. Right. One uh, of the rare conditions where Mars applies to Mercury. Right. So yeah. that I bring that up just because it means because there's going to be three of those conjunctions, sometimes when due to retrogrades, planets will um, form three exact aspects. It means that the first aspect can sometimes open up a sequence of events that uh, pl then plays itself out over the course of the next few weeks, or where even if you initiate something once at the beginning with the first conjunction or something happens, there may still be echoes or repercussions of it for the next several weeks when as those two planets meet up again and continu continue their sort of dance back and forth over the sky during the course of like a month or two. Yeah, absolutely. And then in um, July, we get uh, eclipses in Cancer and Capricorn, right? So there's there's a lot to unpack and change in that axis. It's going to take more than, you know, um, more than more than a, a, a crazy weekend to unpack and process all of that. For sure, for sure. I mean, and the sun, we probably should note, does move into Cancer, I think on the around the 21st. So just adding more weight to that uh, already emphasized axis. Yep, solstice. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, the solstice. Um, okay, and that kind of starts bringing us to the end of the month. The only last thing I have written down, really, in terms of ingresses, is that you know eventually Mercury does try to get clear of all of that stuff and tries to escape into Leo, where it briefly does get some distance from Mars and from Saturn and Pluto. So it leaves about June twenty sixth. It goes into Leo. But then that's kind of short-lived because then in early July, Mars also moves into Leo and catches up with it, and Mercury stations retrograde where it will eventually uh, retrograde back into Cancer and not station direct until it hits, uh, what is it, 23 degrees of Cancer. So as soon as Mercury hits 23 degrees of Cancer in June, it's in its shadow phase or shadow period. Yes. Lot to sort out. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of this, of course, is going to be not sorted out and still up in the air to some extent through July, but at least we get the first half of and the opening sort of sequence of events for the most part in June. Yeah. And, you know, some of this, um, we're talking about ominous configurations and all that. Some of this is just going to be like what's on the news. Like they'll probably not right. be some inspired. There'll probably be some less than inspiring developments in national and international headlines. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we're all looking forward to seeing for the sort of spectacle of it all, uh, in terms of something we've been looking forward to for a while, and seeing the specific details of some of how that plays out. Yep. 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 All right, um, so but other true. than that. Do you have any metaphors for this month then? I don't know, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I'm just so not good with those um, snappy metaphors. But I do think that theme of, yes, there is this heavier pattern coming in, but we do get these sort of 48-hour reprieve periods um, when the moon is not configured to it. So even like now that we're here and we're in the nitty-gritty, there will be those days where you can step back from what's difficult or hard and just reconnect or catch up with other things before you get back into it. It's like, I mean, the thing that just occurred to me is like like hot and cold baths or something maybe where there's an mm. alternating type of energy. Yeah, or although it's not a great metaphor that I don't think anyone's going to hashtag, but like almost like when you lift a weight, like a, like a barbell, you have to exert like an extreme amount of energy to bring it upwards, but then there's this relief on the downward slope when you sort of like let go and release that from your arm and it rests even if only momentarily. And a lot of the alternation between the moon this month sort of reminds me of that alternation between something that feels difficult and um, hard, but that you have to do in order to push through in order to make progress, but also sometimes like giving yourself a moment to breathe and like let go before you do it over again. Yeah. yeah, well, and I like that because if you're lifting weights, there's it's a controlled release. Mm-hmm. You don't just go dead um, or else you'll hurt yourself, but like a yeah. controlled release and then gathering the strength to lift again, followed by controlled release. Right. So what's the, what's the word for that? Give me something snappy like meat grinder, <laughs> but like less uh, messy. Doesn't work that way. Um, So I was Uh, just thinking about meat grinder. What you use meat grinder for? Use it to make sausage, which reminds me of you know how the sausage is made. Oh my lord! But then I'm like, okay, so sausage with a side of. 
right? Because we do have some really nice Jupiter configurations and Jupiter's configured with Neptune. So I don't know, sausage with a side of dreams. Uh <laughs> uh, there's a few people in the chat, like uh, Afros Fatima says hashtag deadlifts. Lisa Newcomb says labor pangs. Uh, William Mazdra says brain sausage. I like that. All of those are pretty good. So astrological deadlifts. That's kind of that's what well, we're doing and this, we can invite month. our listeners to come up with some hashtags for this and tag us on Twitter and Facebook. Yes. Let me know what you're making sausage out of. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Uh, are you using fennel? Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, tag us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever your preferred social media is, and let us give us a snappy title for this, especially for those people um, like Wolf. Uh, I'm spacing on his last name, but he was pointing out that, for example, his he's expecting a baby this month, and he got yeah. like a funny like a baby shirt that said um, "Meat Grinder," and it was uh, referring to that as like a funny little thing. Well, but and I also I should point this out: I have a meat grinder in my natal chart. I don't have Pluto, yes, but I have I have that. Mars and Saturn opposite each other with the nodes. With the nodes, yeah. So this is part of this is what a meat grinder looks like. This is what a meat grinder with a good Jupiter looks like, which is that's what the charts being handed out this June are. There, yes. it's meat grinder with a side of Jupiter, <laughs> with a side of dignified Jupiter. Yeah, well, and that dignified Jupiter, uh, you've got it exalted in Cancer in the first, but here it's you know Jupiter in its home sign in Sagittarius is a nice little bonus. Uh, not to, to mention that mine's mine's retrograde as well. Sure. Not to mention Saturn in Capricorn and its home sign, which is a major mitigation I've seen over and over again in like Saturn return stories and other things like that. Regardless of how challenging, other challenging the aspects are, that's still a major like silver lining. Absolutely. So, all right, guys. Um, I think we. I have no idea how long we went because I got restarted uh, early on, but I think that that brings us to the end of the forecast for june of 2019 yeah um, yeah thanks a lot that was fun that was a nice way to recap and uh talk about norwak and share some experiences of that we look forward to hearing and it's been fun reading everybody's like social media posts about that and we hope to hear more stories about norwak maybe in the comments section for this episode if anybody has anything they want to share any interesting like articles or if anybody's done like a synopsis of their experience at Norwak. We asked people to do that um, in the Q&A episode that I'm going to release next week. But if anybody wants to link to an article they wrote about their experience at Norwak or a video or a blog mm. post or what have you, then please post it in the comments section either on YouTube for this episode or on the podcast website or whatever you want. All right. Any final words before we call it a, call it a day? Take care and have fun. We look for I look forward to debriefing and hearing how it all goes. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 as ready as I'm going to get. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think we're ready. We're going into it strong and we'll all hopefully come out better people on the other end of it. So yes. we look forward to seeing you guys, seeing everybody next month, and we will all check back in again and see where our lives are at at that point. Fantastic. Bye everyone. Take care. All right. Thanks, yeah. everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs> Excellent. Bye.